previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. If I'm not helping the guys behind me go further than I did, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not coaching. I'm just not helping. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 28 of the Sports Refuge Podcast, the show where we talk with guests about their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. My guest, Jonathan Howard, has worked a number of jobs, including as a sports reporter during my tenure at the Daily Times in Salisbury, Maryland, more than a decade ago. Following what he described as a retirement from the field of journalism at the age of 26, Howard found his path earning his master's degree at Morgan State University and eventually working for the Federal Transportation Administration. In this episode, which I will warn has slight language, I talk with Howard about his initial interest in journalism, what it's like living his life after journalism, and his interest in transportation. We'll also discuss how he became a Baltimore Orioles and New York Mets fan, the differences in living in Seattle, Washington, Baltimore, Maryland, and New York City, and much more. And now, here's my conversation with Jonathan Howard. My guest is Jonathan Howard, someone I've known a long time. We used to be in the trenches in journalism at the Daily Times in Salisbury, Maryland. And I've been trying to get him on the show for the longest time. It's always trying to get the schedules to work together. And now, I'm glad to have him. John, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, Earl? I am absolutely great. I always tell people, and I know it seems like it's going to be a cliche, it's always good being six feet above ground. I agree with you. I hear you say that when I listen to your podcast, and every time I say, you know what, Earl's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it puts it in perspective because, man, you know, this ain't so bad. Whatever, Whatever is going on, we can... Uh, as long as you got a fighting chance, you're okay. Yeah, I started to become a little more optimistic because I started telling people this theory, and it started coming to me a little more later in life. The odds are, if there's something you want to do, you have a good chance of doing it as long as you're alive because there are no odds that defy you until you're dead because then you really can't do anything. I've always said, yeah, if you're 80 years old and you want to become a doctor, sure, you may retire by the time you finally finish your residency, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. Yeah, I tell that to my friends all the time. You know, I said, you know, geez, we're still, we still got a lot of time, and uh, you know, very doable goals. Whatever the goal may be, you're trying to, you know, go back to college. You're trying to move up in your job. Like, I was like, these aren't unattainable things. You can do this. You just need to make a plan and do it. But yeah, that's definitely true. And the biggest thing is nobody ever knows when their number is going to be called. But yeah. you got to do the best you can and do whatever you want and live life smartly. I mean, not like the people who did the YOLO thing, driving 100 miles per hour on video. <laughs> That's not the smartest oh. thing you can do, but... No, I'm a fan of... Uh, <laughs> when you're young, you tend to be a little reckless, but uh, oh, I'm pretty, uh, pretty tame now. I'm not driving 100 miles an hour anywhere. Forget that. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's so many things I wanted to discuss with you, especially about how you got into journalism, and what it was like making a transition out of it, because you were probably one of the very lucky ones that got out before the avalanche started. I feel like you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got into journalism when I was in my last year at, at Salisbury, and um, go Seagulls, and I was a journalism major. I was a communication and journalism PR major, 
And we had all the journalism students there. Uh, we all took classes with this guy, Dr. Simmons. Um, I don't know if you ever ran into him at all, Earl, in Salisbury, but uh, Haven Simmons. But as he used to say, he, he likes to put down a couple cold ones every now and then. Uh, you know, over at the Monkey Barrel or wherever else. Uh, but yeah, no, he was kind of like a local institution over there at the university. But great, great journalism professor. And, you know, the way he would teach his class, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, Journalism 101. He'd enter the class and, you know, everybody would be talking. And all of a sudden he'd just start doing a, a press conference uh, about, you know, a shooting that happened or, you know, something, some kind of news press conference. And everyone had to quit talking and start taking notes because once he finished the press conference, he'd take some questions and then he'd pretty much say, okay, now you have 35 minutes to write me a story, you know? So he really added the deadline pressure element to it, too. So it was very, very practical. But, uh, but yeah, last year at Salisbury, uh, needed an internship and I just, I think I may have even gone in person. I can't remember if I called. I went to the Daily Times and said, hey, let's see, uh, what can I do? I had been writing for the... Uh, the Fire? Fire. Thank you, yeah. I, I, I had written, um, I don't think I wrote any sports for them. I forgot what I wrote for them. Uh, column of some type, I can't remember. And then, um, yeah, so I got to the Times, and I think it was... I think it was Eric Saylor uh, who asked me, he said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do cops or do you want to do sports? And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, ah, I don't know. Sports sounds a lot more fun. Let's do sports. And that was it. That's how, <laughs> that's how it happened. And so I spent like uh, one semester doing, I was at, at an internship. And then after that, you know, they really said, well, we could use you. Um, and so I was still in college. I was working part-time at the Times. And after college, I was like a super stringer for them. You know, I don't know. I think you were in that position for a while, too. Like, uh, like oh, yeah, you, almost full-time hours, uh, no benefits. <laughs> or, you know, not really any decent money. But, but, yeah, I did that for a while. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. What was the most exciting part about being a journalist? Uh, you know, I think that most exciting part. I definitely had some highlights. Uh, I did get to go when I was working as a sports writer for a small newspaper in Vermont. Uh, they every every summer the Red Sox have uh, like one day for you know because it's really hard to get tickets to the Red Sox, so they they set aside like couple thousand tickets just for people from a specific state so they have Vermont Day they have New Hampshire Day Connecticut Day you know they got like seven states that feed their fan base so they invite all the local press for that too so uh, so I got to go to for Vermont Day I got to go to Fenway and you know we had full press access got you know to go down to the locker room got to interview uh who did i talk to i talked to uh terry francona jonathan papelbarn uh pedroia yeah that was right when he came up i think i, I can't remember if, if i interviewed pedroia when he was on the Sox or because i also did a couple games in um 
Pawtucket, Rhode Island. He might have still been a Pawtucket at that point, but Pedroia was a good interview. Um, yeah, that was that was one of the coolest things I did, and uh, you know, got to go into the monster, and that was pretty cool. But uh, to me, there's like nothing more exciting than a super close high school basketball game in the middle of the winter uh, like with two rival teams I, I just I love that I love that intensity I love the energy in the gym and um, and I love the vibe like I was most excited by, by that kind of thing yeah I think the pack gyms especially let's use Y High for an example for some of yeah, our listeners who will be in Salisbury, Maryland Wicomico High School everyone calls it the Waller Dome you get a game there with <laughs> Parkside or James M. Bennett, and it gets nuts there. Yeah, yep. And, and they still, um, they still got the DJ that comes too. I think he does, but maybe only big games. Maybe if they're playing a team like from the Bayside North or so. Right, right, right. That was just like the coolest thing. That, that's why. Uh, I mean, I, I like that about basketball. That like there is more music. There's more intensity. There's more like keeping the crowd engaged, you know. Um, I think that's a lot of what makes sports fun for me is the excitement, you know. And I've been to like games in uh, at Safeco Field in Seattle, perfect example. I, I could have taken a nap in that place. I mean, there's no energy, no excitement. Even the Orioles games, like with the Orioles being as a dog shit team as they are, are still more exciting than there. It'd be just because it's just like, it's quiet. And the music's not good. Like they don't have the volume turned up enough. Like it's all that. So yes, that's what I love most about sports. I'm not a huge sports. Uh, in fact, when I was writing, I was way more into national sports and everything. But for me, it's always just been about like the, the excitement of the game and not as much about like, the uh, the punditry, you know. Yeah, I wonder if the older we get, our interest in national sports starts to wane, and it gets to be more of a regional, local thing. Right. I wonder that too. I know that for me, I have my teams, and I pretty much focus on them. And they're usually, you know, I'm an Orioles fan, so I know what I'm getting most years with that. Uh, I'm an Islanders fan, so this year was pretty cool. Although, I don't know if we're going to make it out of this round in playoffs. Doesn't look like it. And, um, but, you know, again, I don't have any winning teams. Like, none of my teams are winners. So, I will check out from time to time. Like, I definitely don't. It's not that I'm not as into sports uh, as I used to be. I'm just not into... Like, I don't follow it like I used to do. And maybe that is age, and maybe it'll come back around. Because my dad's retired. He just retired last year. I feel like he's more into sports than ever. Just because he's got time to watch SportsCenter all day, you know? So. I think it was maybe late April. The last time I watched a full episode of SportsCenter, and it was the Scott Van Pelt version, late at night. So... I saw some of that, and it was on repeat pretty much. And that was probably the last time I watched a full episode of SportsCenter, even though it was just on in the background, and I wasn't really paying much mind to it. I was yeah. doing some editing for a project, and I was like, okay, yeah, this is on. It's cool, but... Right. Well, you know, it's also like, you know, 
SportsCenter used to be how we got our, you know, in, it, except for reading the paper, which I used to do in high school to learn about what happened in the games the day before. Sports Center was how we learned, you know? It was like, oh, let me check, you know, I was like, let me see the Islanders highlights. I didn't see the game last night. Well, I know I'm going to have to wait till about, you know, minute 45 before they even get to the Islanders. But, like, uh, yeah, that's how we did it. But, you know, now we have all this information instantly. Do you think the idea, essentially, of the newspaper format, yesterday's news, tomorrow is sort of one that is starting to get a little bit antiquated? What, print newspapers? Yeah, just or at least a format. I mean, it's not like it's Back to the Future where you can just do this minute's news in print right now. It's just sort of... I mean, I like the feel of a newspaper, but I haven't physically used a newspaper or read a newspaper in a while. Everything, I'll just go to their website when you're trying to avoid the five articles right. per month that you can right. get for free. You know, I, I do think it is antiquated. I, I think that um, I subscribe to the New York Times and um, I get the Sunday paper. And just because it was only a little bit more expensive than, or maybe it was double the price, but it's still pretty cheap. And uh, because I wanted the online access, you know. New York Times is, is a good buy for me because covers all the national stuff that I'm interested in as well as like enough stuff local to me here in New York so like I feel like that's worth my money but you know I was like it's only a little bit more money for the print let me get the Sunday one because the Sunday Times comes with like you know the magazine and it really will take you the whole week to read it but I still don't even read it I just recycle it like I just uh like I'm looking at one right now that I got to go throw in the in the bin. Like it's uh, I just read it online, you know. I really do. I and mean, sometimes I'll take the paper and I'll just like I'm going to my dad's later and I'll just give it to him because I know he appreciates having the the actual physical paper. And I love that. I love sitting and reading a paper. But I just think that we've been programmed not to do it. You know, we've learned different, faster ways to get our information. It's just kind of. Uh, a relic at this point. Yeah, I think the reporting is very essential. I just think doing the format of the physical paper might be something that eventually it's going to go away. And I think with a lot yeah. of papers, not all of them, a lot of papers, it will go away. I think the I big agree. ones, like the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, you said the New York Times, those may stay, but other ones might not last as long. Yeah. You know, I think papers that have an international presence like the New York Times, Washington Post, like I think they will maintain a print version because uh, I don't know, like I've been to Mexico a few times and they have a lot of newspapers, like paper journalism is still like, I don't know what the ranking is, but it still makes money there. And they have a lot of, tons of different newspapers, different, you know, weeklies, and they have a lot of, like, newsstands still, like, you know, old-school newsstands on the corner. And you buy your news there. I was kind of surprised, because it's not like that country lacks um, digital access. Most people there have a smartphone. But I don't know. So maybe internationally, the paper is still recognized as, like, the kind of like a global currency. But um, 
for us here in the States. And the other thing is, like, maybe if we as a country kind of like valued our downtime, you know, people always talking about, oh yeah, getting a cup of coffee and sitting down with the paper. When is, when is the last time you did that? Like, I mean, I haven't even had time to do that since I was like, uh, I don't even know when. Like, that's that sounds lovely. That's luxurious and everything, but I got shit to do. <laughs> yeah, I honestly... Uh, I have, I'll say sometimes at night when I'm not working, I'm sitting and watching TV. Newspapers, at least, thought on my mind, especially I have not even concerned myself about what's in a newspaper, especially around the Delaware area, because one, I'm a Marylander at heart, and it doesn't really matter to me. The only big thing I cared about was the toll hike coming back in from New Jersey to Delaware that went up from 4 to $5 on May 1st. And I got that from somewhere else other than the newspaper. Right. Yeah. So did that toll hike affect your commute? Yeah, it's only coming in to Delaware out of New Jersey, not going out of New Jersey. Apparently, Delaware, for a state with no sales tax, loves taxing their toll roads. I mean, using yeah. that toll tax, you go into Maryland, you got to pay. If you go out to Maryland, you got to pay. You go into Delaware from Maryland, you got to pay. You go out to New Jersey, they haven't told you on that yet but coming back in from new jersey yeah five dollars instead of the four dollars that yeah. i was paying when i first started this new job in november 2018 well you know they're gonna get it some way so but you ever do the uh that like you probably do because you live in that area but i mean you know my whole life because of my family half my family being in baltimore other half in new york been driving through delaware forever and uh, what we always did is my dad is like kind of notoriously, you know, notoriously save a dime, kind of cheap. And um, he get off uh, in Newark and, and go, you can avoid the toll. You do like the kind of the circuitous thing, uh, route four, route, one of those routes over there. Yeah, there's a few ways, a few cheats to get through Maryland uh, and into Delaware without paying toll. That's what he avoided, yeah. Yeah, this is one thing I do. We normally go to the Timonium stop for the light rail for an Orioles game. Yeah. Once we get on Timonium, we go, as we're going back home, we take the exit to Towson, then take the exit towards New York, go through that way. What we do next is we cut off in Bel Air, go through Bel Air, go through the Conowingo Dam. Conowingo Dam, there you go. Cut okay. through to get through Port Deposit, go through Port Deposit, then you got to swing on 95 towards the John F. Kennedy uh, Highway, go that way, it takes you towards Elkton, go off that way, and then go through to get to back to Newark near the University of Delaware, and then we're home scot-free after that. Nice, nicely done. My dad would appreciate that. <laughs> Jersey, you can't avoid that because basically oh, it's an hour and a half detour just to get home, taking yeah. the toll freeway. That's not worth it. But it's only Monday through Friday, and I get up so early where, to the point, the traffic shouldn't be bad unless there's a bad accident. Because if I leave like 10 of 7, 720 to get to New Jersey, which is a 40-minute drive, can be a little less than that depending on what's going on on 95. Yeah. yeah, that's not bad. It's just the afternoons. If you don't leave oh, by 3.30, yeah. 4.30, it can be ugly. And depending on if I have to go to my second job, the radio station, it is actually closer from my main job in New Jersey to go to my second job than it is to go home. Ten-minute difference. 
Yeah, so sometimes you go right there. Yeah, I'll go straight from the office in New Jersey back to the station in Delaware, and it's 30 minutes. Going home, it's 40 minutes sometimes. Yeah. But it all depends on what's going on on the roads because if it's a certain time of day, it's a jam all the way up from 13 merging on from 295. I feel you, yeah. Yeah, I hate dealing with traffic, man. I, uh, I'm i blessed that I live right by the subway and my commute to work is like, it can be a little long, like 45 minutes maybe, you know, if the subway's there's some problem in the subway which happens like two out of five days uh, closer to like 55 minutes but uh, you know it's alright even even if I gotta stand even if it's crowded it's still like to me I'm like alright I'm listening to my podcast I'm zoning out it's fine you know and usually I can I can get a seat so it's cool and, and if I get a seat oh man I just sleep <laughs> I'm, I'm like the best subway sleeper I know like people are like, oh, I'll never fall asleep on the subway, this and that. I'm like, first of all, I'm a big guy. No, nothing's ever going to happen. And second of all, I'm tired, so I am going to fall asleep. And, uh, yeah, and, like, that's, like, the true New Yorker is, like, you wake up right before you get to your stop, like, automatically. And I pretty much, like, have that down at this point, so I'm good. <laughs> it's like the blind guy who has that sixth sense of knowing where to not step and where to walk. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like this is where I got to get off. And then you look up and, oh my God, I was right. You know, there we go. <laughs> so, yeah. We actually took the subway to, in New York. We took the subway in New York. It was a couple of summers ago. We went to actually see a concert at the Ford Amphitheater in Coney Island. Oh, yeah. It was a big concert. It was like, they had, okay, so it was Martha Reeves from Martha and the Vandellas. Mary Wilson from The Supremes, it was The Temptations, and it was The Four Tops. Pretty good deal. Wow. I mean, aside from the train ride from Wilmington, uh, which was only a couple hours, but it's pricey. But oh, uh, Amtrak train? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you gotta, in the Northeast Quarter, they soak you. You gotta buy that ticket like a month in advance, and otherwise it's like, forget it. <laughs> I wish that Newark had its continual stop through Wilmington all the way up, but it doesn't yet, and hopefully, eventually, in the future, it will. But mm. instead of driving, I mean, for us, going to Newark train station would be so much quicker than going all the way to Wilmington, which is only like 15, 20 minutes, depending on, again, traffic, and that always is an issue. But it'd be nice to go from Newark all the way up oh, yeah. and come back, and it being sort of a functioning station instead of one of those that's only open on particular hours. Right, right. Yeah, they don't, they don't get a lot of... New York trains at that station at all. Yeah, they, um, that would be cool. I mean, that's one of the benefits of, uh, you know, living in the Northeast is like, and I'm a transportation guy, so like, I'm into this kind of stuff, but like, yeah, you're like hooked into the rail network, right? Like, shoot, you can leave your apartment five minutes and you're on the train to a whole different city and you're there in like a couple hours, you know, that's pretty cool. So, I'm curious, I know you live in New York, you're an Islanders fan, and sometimes Mets fan, and you're an Orioles fan. How did that all come together? Well, grew up in New York, grew up in Long Island, and you know, my dad had come to New York for college. My dad's from Baltimore. Met my mom, and they stayed in New York. 
My mom is from Queens, and her dad's from Brooklyn. And, you know, my mom grew up a Yankees fan. My grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And a lot of the, the Brooklyn Dodgers fans, when the Dodgers left, they became Mets fans. Same thing with the New York Giants. Like, a lot of the that older generation, that most of them are pretty much gone at this point. But, like, that first generation of Mets fans was mostly Giants and Dodgers fans. So, yeah, so I had that. And then, um, you know, from my dad was, my dad grew up two blocks away from Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. So, and my grandmother, you know, still lived there. We went down at least once a month to visit her. And, um, you know, we'd be watching the Orioles game on TV or listening to it on, on the radio, WBAL. And, you know, if there was a home run, or a strikeout or something, we could hear the crowd from my grandmother's house. You know, that's how close it was to Memorial Stadium. So that energy right there, that'll make me a fan. You know, my mom wanted me to be a Yankees fan. She even one time took me to, uh, without my dad's knowledge or consent, took me to Sears uh, and had me all dressed up in Yankees gear. And I was probably like two, three years old and, and had this like, you know, photo session done with me and all this Yankee shit. And my dad was hot about it, of course, but we didn't really go to any Yankees games growing up. It was just like, you know, cause we lived on Long Island and that was in the Bronx and like, you know, it's kind of hard. It's, a little, it's not like it's that hard to get to. It's a little bit difficult to go. And, um, but we went to tons and tons of Orioles games and um, that, that definitely made me a fan. And, you know, even if we didn't go to the game, we would just wander over after the game and um, you know try to get autographs and stuff like that. I rode my bike all around the stadium parking lot. I learned to drive in the stadium parking lot. Like you know that that stadium being right there, just being like a real presence in my childhood. That that had a lot to do with it. Even after the Orioles moved to Camden Yards, the stadium was still up for another ten years. So even though it was just there and it was huge, you know, so that was just like a. Yeah, that's how I became a Orioles fan. And then with the Mets, like, the Mets are my number two because I just went to a lot of Mets games when I was young. Like, they were very close. And uh, a lot of my friends were Mets fans. And my grandfather would take me, you know, to Mets games. So that was that was easy for me to like them. But um, it's definitely Orioles number one, Mets number two when they play each other. That's always been that way. That's not going to change. And, uh, and for the Islanders... You know, like, I, uh, hockey was my favorite sport to play. I never played ice hockey, but just, like, playing in the street, um, that was my favorite. And I played um, a couple roller hockey leagues, too. But, um, you know, I was kind of getting into that, and, like, my grandfather um, was like, yeah, let me take you to a couple Islanders games. And um, we started going to a lot more. And he kind of, you know, he was retired, like, he didn't have anything to do anyway, so he was like, saw me getting into hockey and getting into the Islanders. Uh, he got a partial season ticket plan so we could go to more games. So I went to all these games with my grandfather, and um, of course this was like 1995, 96 or so. I think 1996, the, Ori the Islanders went 22, 50, and 10. So not a lot of wins in there, but you know, uh, still cool. And, uh, yeah, that's how I got into the, the Islanders. Football, um, don't really care that much. Uh, I root for the Jets, like, you know, half-heartedly. And uh, basketball, 
never really was a huge Knicks fan. Um, in 94, of course, I rooted for the Knicks against Houston. But, um, uh, no, I don't really have a favorite basketball team. So, yeah, that's my lineage. And it's very funny that one of my previous guests, Scott Johnson, he lives in, I think he lives in Harlem. And he said, basically, there is a fine line you don't cross. If you are a Mets fan, you have to cheer for the Jets. You don't cheer for the Giants. Or if you're uh-huh. a Yankees fan, you don't cheer for the Jets. It's so strange. Yeah, it's really common. If you're a Yankees fan, you're probably a Giants fan. If you're a Mets fan, you're probably a Jets fan. Like, just, you know, 80% chance or, or something like that. And the history of it, I think, is probably rooted in where your parents or where your parents were maybe where your grandparents grew up like like what part of the city before everybody started you know moving out to the suburbs and stuff like because it really was very fragmented you know like if you were from this part of town this is the team that you you rooted for and stuff like that so i think that might be part of it but yeah no it, it really is like you can draw a line around it and I know you were talking about your grandfather being a Dodgers and basically sort of going towards the Mets. And then you look at the Mets, they are probably, when it comes to their legacy, they are co-opting a lot of the Giants and Dodgers stuff. Their logo is basically the old yeah. Giants logo plus the Dodgers colors. Their stadium looks like Ebbets Field. Ebbets Field, yeah. The Jack, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with the Jackie Robinson rotunda that they have. I mean, that's huge, especially that way the Yankees can't co-opt it. I think, yeah, that's the one thing about the Mets. It's like there is, at one point, man, they are taking either the best parts of both teams or they just know that they need to fill the niche, that not everybody's going to be a Yankees fan. Yeah. It's interesting to me, like, what's your identity? If your identity is we are descendants of these other teams, you know? No, I, I kind of thought that about the Evans Field thing. And I, I like the new, I call it the new Shea Stadium, but that's not what it's called. It's the city, city Field. And um, I still like, it's still Shea Stadium in my mind, but um, I like it. And I, I think it's really, it's really a nice park, but I don't know, like, the duplication of Evans Field uh, it's kind of weird to me. And it's in the middle of a parking lot. Like, Evans Field was in the middle of, like, a bustling urban neighborhood. Like, that's the reason it was, like, shaped like it was. That's the reason it looked like it was. But this is just kind of like a weird relic plopped down in a parking lot. But, yeah, and then the other thing is, like, all those fans, you know, from those other two teams, they're all dead or almost dead. But, you know, I don't know, but I appreciate the Dodgers not just because my grandfather was you know that's my grandfather like you know from brooklyn big dodgers fan he even um even tried out for the dodgers and was offered a minor league contract for me so like the dodgers are a big part of you know my personal history my lineage so i kind of appreciate that so um yeah so it's interesting it's interesting as the years go on will that fade or will it stay the same I guess the good thing is at least that City Field doesn't have the outfield shape like the Polo Grounds with that massive. Oh yeah, field. that could have been the worst thing they could have did. Part Ebbets Field, part Polo Grounds. I mean the sloping, the sloping overhangs, that deep center field. That would have been a mess, and it would have been worse than the hill that was in Minute Maid Park. Minute Maid, yeah. 
I heard that it was the former GM of the Astros. Um, I know Tal is in his name, but it was called Tal's Hill, and they put it there, I guess, to be a little bit different. I'm sure whoever was the center fielder was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Why do I got to play with this hill? Yeah, and thankfully, they got rid of it. Even though, I mean, the nice little quirk, there are some places that have the quirk, you know, the green monster, the warehouse, yeah, that western metal thing that's in San Diego, which looks pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... In the field of play. <laughs> I mean, even the Yankees wised up and took the monuments out of the field of play. They did. It's true. I can't believe that they used to be in the moment, but it's crazy. Yeah, but then again, fans could jump out in the field and congratulate players before people started going nuts. It's true. People can't handle themselves, you know? I mean, like, I always think of Hank Aaron rounding the bases when he hit, I think, 715, and then the guys are right beside him, and then, but you think oh, yeah. about it, if you think about, you know, he had been receiving death threats and all that stuff, I can understand why he'd be uh, freaking out, because you don't know what people are going to do, especially back then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't like, you know, uh, there was no metal detectors or anything like that at the stadiums like they have now, but nothing did happen to him, thank God. Is there a particular dream stadium that you wanted to see that you haven't seen yet that you're interested in? Oh, boy. Um, Let me think. Uh, Dodger Stadium in L.A. Never been there. Really like to go. Um, Let's see, where else? Uh, Uh... I've been to Wrigley, but not for a game. I'd like to check that out. I was there in the winter, and it, <laughs> the like side entrance was open. I just kind of wandered in. I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Um, and uh, I'd like to go to Wrigley. I kind of want to. There's a, a number of really old minor league parks out there that, like, you know, things change, and their days might be numbered. I don't know if you've ever been to, what is it called? Memorial Stadium, Memorial Park in uh, Hagerstown? Before where the Suns play? Yeah, I haven't been there. I heard that they're having that issue of trying to find a new venue, and they were talking about, at one point, moving out of Hagerstown. Yeah, they were, they were going to move to, like, uh, Martinsburg, West Virginia, somewhere around that area. But, like, I've been there before. Like, that's a really cool field, and they've been playing baseball in that field for century. <laughs> that's pretty cool. And, you know, and it's not modern at all, but to me, that's the drug. And so it's like, there's a lot of places like that that um, I kind of want to see before they, you know, all these teams, you know, metaphorically move to Arnsburg or whatever. Like, I mean, I'm trying to think where else. I- I've been lucky to get to some of these old ones. Centennial uh, Field in-, in Burlington, Vermont, which I think was built in uh, like 1900, and then um, uh, well, I forget the name of the park. There's one in um, uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where the Pittsfield Mets used to play. So they don't even play baseball anymore. I'm glad I got to that one. And yeah, I don't know. I'm really into like older parks and trying to get to them. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you were talking about two of the stadiums you wanted to go to during games, and they actually sort of cross over. I've been to Dodger Stadium, and that was a pretty cool experience. The walk wasn't. We yeah. ended up parking on, like, 
uh, some little oh, yeah. parking lot and walked all the way uphill to get to the stadium. But it was a pretty cool thing. I mean, yeah, you could look out and see the mountains and the palm trees and everything. That was yeah. probably the personification of baseball in California. Yeah, that's cool. I can't believe they don't have a subway going to that stadium or like something. Like, it's a mess, apparently, the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, and the traveling through there, you hit the wrong time. Oh boy, we tried to leave super early to get to Dodger Stadium and we still got caught in traffic. Wow. Yeah, no, it's. I couldn't do that. But yeah, Dodger Stadium would be really cool. I, I'm lucky I got to see, uh, I always wanted to see the stadium in Kansas City. It just looks so cool with those fountains and stuff. Uh, I, I got to go to a, a game there like uh, 15 years ago or so. That was really cool. Oh, yeah. And if you ever go, Milwaukee, really cool. And we got like uh, super yeah. cheap tickets to the lower, well, third base, lower left field side. And only problem was warm day, the dome was open. Right. It was a shadow basically until two hours into the game when it finally covered up. And it looks so weird. It's like they're playing baseball indoors, but then, oh, we're outdoors. Yeah. It's one of those weird indoor outdoor balls. Yeah. It's like a little bit of both. You know, I like uh, for new parks, I actually like Safeco. Like, I think the design is really cool. You know, and the retractable roof they have there, I think, is, like, so awesome, especially to, like, watch it move, you know? And uh, my complaint with Safeco is strictly about the atmosphere, <laughs> not the park. The park's beautiful. Uh, where else? Oakland Coliseum. Man, that place is cool. But that's the thing. Like, when I was living out on the West Coast, I was living in Seattle. When the Orioles would come to the Mariners, I would see the games, but they'd only come for, like, one series. A lot of times, I would go fly down to, uh, it, it's really cheap to fly, like, Seattle to, to Oakland, or Seattle to San Francisco. I just go down there and see, like, one or two games in Oakland. Uh, usually, like, two games. I try to stay for most of the series, and um, I did that, like, three times. But, man, that is a great place to watch a game, because, I mean, it... I know when people complain about that stadium, apparently there's sewage issues in the uh, in the locker room, okay? I, I wouldn't want to deal with that, I get it. But for a fan perspective, oh my God, I mean, the people watching the game are into the game. You know, they don't have like this big ass jumbotron. They're lacking a lot of the distractions that a lot of newer stadiums have and, and, and you know, quote unquote, need. But Ace fans are passionate and they're talking shit I mean the whole thing like and it was great I loved it and like they got guys with drums and stuff like I mean that's the kind of atmosphere I'm looking for like always <laughs> you know so that was really cool definitely enjoyed open coffee and it's funny when you think about the history of the A's man that would have been a Philadelphia team that people would have gotten behind them if they had an atmosphere like that that's pure Philly yeah. and I was talking to somebody who is a Philly sports fan, and I said, you imagine if you grew up, and let's say all the stuff, sports talk radio was around the 50s, you grew up in the 50s. You had the Phillies, you had the Warriors, you had the A's, and yeah, you had the Eagles, but yeah, all those teams at that time in the 50s, it's like, man, and I always ask, knowing what you know now, and everything still went the same, would you have rather had the Phillies or the A's in Philadelphia? 
And they yeah. said the Phillies. They'll take the Phillies. Even with all the World Series that the A's won in the 70s and going to the World yeah. Series three times in the 80s and early 90s, they still would take the Phillies. Uh, that's an abstract question for people. I don't know if people can't rewrite their history, you know. Uh, but, I mean, I would take the A's just for, uh, just for like, Ricky Henderson and, you know, like, uh, what was the name of the big, tall pitcher they had? Oh, um, yeah, they had some exciting, exciting baseball over there. So. Yeah, but it's funny, going to Citizens Bank, first thing they have out there is a picture of Connie Mack, and it's the A's Hall of Fame on the statue. So it's not like they've forgotten. It, uh-huh. They know that, hey, there used to be another team here, and we're not forgetting about it. Yeah, I guess that's akin to uh, what the Mets did. You know, hey, you know, we know your team left, but we're going to draw you in here. Whereas the Yankees have always just been like, whatever, either you like us or you don't. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to make any friends. Yeah, and like in St. Louis, it's like, oh yeah, the Browns were here. Yeah, we don't okay. like to talk about it. <laughs> well, no, I was too long. I mean, oh, I was thinking Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. Oh man, that's that was, that, was, that was so long ago in St. Louis. That was yeah, fifty-three was it last year? And I think that. The Cardinals probably acknowledge the Browns more than the Orioles do, and that's their lineage. That's true. That is true, yeah. I wonder if if the Orioles kept the Browns' name, they probably would have had more connection to it. But, you know, because Baltimore had an International League Orioles team for decades, and, you know, they always had a team called the Orioles, you know, so it was just kind of like, I guess the the Major League Orioles kind of took on that personality, so to speak. I know you said your grandparents lived near Memorial Stadium. Did you ever go when they had the CFL team, the Stallions? Yeah, yeah. I went to uh, my my father. He's a big Colts fan, and uh, he was just, you know probably still burned up by that thing. And you know he's kind of like kind of become a Giants fan. You know, I think he used to be a big Eli Manning fan, so like, you know, he kind of got on with the Giants. But he was a Colts fan first and foremost, and I think he always felt a little burned by that. But yeah, when they got the Stallions, first they were the Colts, and then they were the no-names, and then they were the Stallions, because they said, you can't call them the Colts. Indianapolis sued them for that. Then the remainder of their first year, they were just the Baltimore blank, whatever, question mark. And then they went to the stallion, I think, for the last year or two. But um, my dad was like, oh, yeah, I'm not paying for Canadian football. Get out of here. But, you know, since he grew up around the stadium, uh, he knew, like, all right, probably this entranceway, there's not going to be anybody here past the first quarter. So he would kind of wait it out, and then we just kind of sneak in. And it wasn't ever sold out, I don't believe. So, like, we just kind of went in and and seats in there. But yeah, I think we, we did that like two or three times. So yeah, it was pretty cool. It was definitely really, because the only other football game uh, that they played there after the Colts left was once a year, the City Poly uh, football game on you know Thanksgiving Day, and that's it. You know, the two best high schools in Baltimore play each other for like a big centuries-long tradition, traditional game. But yeah, that's it. So it was really cool to like see and hear football sounds from that stadium. That was really cool. Yeah, I would watch them on TV, and 
I feel like every time I talk about some of these stories, they can always be prefaced in previous episodes, too. But I remember watching them. I'd watch Channel 2, like, every Saturday night. And they would either play Sacramento or Birmingham or San Antonio or Las Vegas for that one year before they folded. And it was just crazy seeing yeah. that they were really good. And maybe a couple yeah. of the guys made it to the uh, NFL, what, O.J. Uh-huh. Brigantz and somebody else. Well, they won the they won the Great Cup two years in a row. I think. I think they lost the first one on a field goal, and then they won the second one, and then that's when Armodell said, "Yeah, we're bringing a team to Baltimore." And bye. Yeah, yeah that was something. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, three downs just blew my mind. I was like, "How come there's only three downs? What's going on here?" Yeah, and I know we were just talking about teams and previous legacies. You got to wonder who is still more burned up about their team leaving town is it Colts fans or is it Browns fans seeing what happened in the long run seeing that Baltimore got their two Super Bowls and I always hear there's still angry Colts fans in Baltimore oh yeah tons tons of them my you know I think most of them became Ravens fans but I don't know some people they just couldn't do it my dad couldn't do it now that the Ravens marching bands, but for the first X number of years, it was the Colts marching band. It was the new Colts almost, but I don't know if it's like the colors or just, I don't know what it is, but he couldn't do it. His best friend couldn't do it. I think he had already become a Redskins fan or something. I don't know. You know, people hold a grudge no matter what. So. I've, you know, 35 years is a long time to hold a grudge, but it happens. Yeah, especially two Super Bowls. Now, as a Browns fan, I'd be angry, just not even that. But seeing the Ravens win two Super Bowls with basically what was your foundation and your Hall of Fame tight end as a GM. And then seeing Belichick in New England with his rings, that's potentially eight rings that got away from Cleveland. Yeah, I think that's worse. (laughs) And then, you know, they didn't get another team, but... They suck. They're perpetually terrible. And so it kind of is worse to see what you could have had rather than see what you can't have. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if Sonics fans are just perpetually mad just seeing Russell Westbrook and the Thunder just sort of get stuck and go nowhere now. I wonder if they're just sort of happy about that, reveling, knowing, oh, our time will eventually come. We're going to get a team back. And then... Oh, yeah, you are spot on. Sonics fans are passionate and, and they're also haters. So, yeah, you're spot on with that. Did you ever see the Sonic Skate documentary about how they lost the team? No, no, I didn't see that. It was on YouTube. I watched it years ago, and it's just, man, so many things were conspiring against them. It feels like state government was stupid. It feels like the NBA was basically conspiring against them, and it seems like they still are. And ownership was incompetent. And those are the perfect mix. That's how you get the Colts leaving in the middle of the night. You have basically an incompetent, belligerent, drunk owner who's been flirting with cities. And then you have the state government trying to put eminent domain on the team. Yeah. And the people who got hurt were the fans. Right. And it's sad because, you know, I I lived in Seattle for like a total of uh, five and a half years. And um, it's a basketball town. Like, it, it really is. I mean, University of Washington, they're not the best, but they're competitive. And, you know, that's a good league. They play against some good teams. And, you know, the University of Washington women's team is, is usually pretty good. The um, And then the high school scene 
around there. I mean, they've produced, you know, a lot of players. Uh, they've got some real, like, some super good prospects. They're always producing good players, and they've always got good teams like Garfield High School, Virginia Beach High School, you know, some of the others, too. Some of the prep schools. So I really would love to see a new Sonics team there. I'd love it to remain the Sonics name. I think that's, like, very special to people that are there, you know. Especially because Seattle's changed so much, and, and it's becoming a booming, like, international city. You know, the Sonics were for when it was like a smaller, more kind of gritty city, or just not even just gritty, but just like, you know, people weren't flocking to Seattle like they are now. It's not like this, what it is now. And so I'd like to kind of, it would be cool to retain that for the people who, you know, have been there the whole time, you know, and not just some brand new off the shelf team. It's interesting with that NHL team coming there, how they'll embrace that. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be fine. I just, hockey's not really that big there, you know? It really isn't. They have the Western Hockey League there, and um, they have the Seattle Thunderbirds, who actually play in Kent, which is like 25 miles south. And they have the Everett uh, Silvertips, who play in Everett, like 30 miles north. So Seattle itself hasn't had a hockey team for a few years. And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the minor league games that I've been to there are very well attended. They definitely... um, have a good atmosphere. I'm sure it'll do fine. There's so many people with <laughs> disposable incomes in Seattle right now because of the tech boom. Like, people will go and spend their money there. I'm not worried about that, you know. If they start to win, you know, they'll definitely get a fan base. Yeah, I guess their natural rival will end up being Vancouver just by a location itself because there's no Portland. Uh, I can't think of anybody else. Yeah, probably Vancouver. Uh, San Jose, maybe, just because there's a lot of, like, Bay Area people. A lot of people have their roots down the Bay Area, whatever, L.A., I don't know. But, yeah, Vancouver would be a rival. But, the, you know, most of the people in Seattle who are NHL fans are Canucks fans. So, if they grew up there. So, that'll be kind of interesting to see how that kind of takes away from that fan base. But most people who live in Vancouver are not Mariners fans, they're Blue Jays fans. Even though the proximity, but just I think with stuff like Toronto being Canada's only team, you know, I think everybody has kind of latched on to like, this is Canada's team. You know, the Blue Jays, they're putting like the Maple Leaf more prominently in their logo and on their uniforms and stuff like that. I feel like that's kind of like a marketing push that they've been doing. Yeah, it's funny. I think the Expo's moving, Toronto benefited more than Washington did. Absolutely. What do you think about the national fan base? How do you characterize them? Somewhat apathetic. And I'll just say this because when Baltimore comes and fills up your stadium. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one thing. And then when Philly fans come up and fill your stadium, that's another thing. It's one thing when you have a regional rival as opposed to a divisional rival. When they come down and fill up your stadium like they did... I remember, well, I heard in Philadelphia on a radio station, they were doing buses to come down to tailgates to come yeah. to Nats Park. Yep. I went to, uh, this must have been like 2012. They had like a, a late season home and home. Uh, I think it was in August. And I remember they were both playing well, probably competing for their playoff spot and all this. So it was a lot of it was a good atmosphere. And so I remember I went to D.C. for two or three of the games. This is when I was living in Baltimore. And uh, look, the Orioles fans, we took over the Stat Stadium for sure. And so much so that when we were leaving the stadium, 
the guy on the saxophone, you know, busking out in the street was playing, thank God I'm a country boy, you know? So, <laughs> listen, that's your stadium, man. That's your town, and he's playing for us. Come on. Yeah, I can only imagine during the national anthem, the O that came from there. Oh, yeah. And wow, man. as a Redskins fan, I still go to FedEx occasionally because I'm not paying my money to that team. But you still hear the O. It is not as thunderous as it was. But I feel like there's that semi-elitism, like, that's a Baltimore thing. We don't like it here. Hey, you're pissing off half of your constituents who actually go see the game. Last thing you want to do is make it a regional thing. And like, oh, you know, we don't like this Baltimore thing. Hey, there are some people who are not playing Ravens and Orioles fans. You have people who are Redskins and Orioles fans. And you might, weirdly enough, have people who are Nats fans and Ravens fans. And those things happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a, a firm line, really, you know? I don't know. I, I mean, Nationals have been there for what, 12 years, something like that? Yeah, almost 15 years. 15 years? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see once they hit, like, 25. Like, what's the fan base like? Because some of those, you know, the kids who grew up, the only Nationals will start becoming adults. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, for sure. But... Yeah, man, I wasn't impressed by those Nationals fans. I really wasn't. No disrespect to Duran. I think he's a Nationals fan. So. Yeah, he's a Nats fan. He, I always talk about his teams. Uh, he's a Packers fan. I think he's a Phoenix Suns fan. And he is a Nats fan. And it's just so weird. <laughs> the weird combination. Yeah. But then again, I, like I said, uh, we were talking about the conversations that me and Eddie and Duran would have. Eddie is a Mariners fan. Mariners a, fan. A Spurs yep. fan and a Niners fan and it's like that's a very 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 weird combination but he's been riding with the Niners for like 25 plus years so hey look I mean I appreciate a Spurs fan because for being as good and consistent a team as they were they didn't really attract a lot of fans from like wherever if you were a fan of the team you were a fan of the team but uh I don't know. People found them too boring. But I, I really like that kind of boring ass defensive shit. So. <laughs> yeah, I always thought, even if you maybe change the color scheme, their color scheme, if it's something a little more lively that represents San Antonio, maybe that helps. Even just a little color scheme, because it's such a bland color, silver and black. And it's not like Raiders silver and black, where, yeah, you know. It's true. It's true. I mean, you're right on the Mexico border. Get a little color in there, you know? A little uh, spice. Yeah, because I think like their old logo had like some pink and some blue and some, I think a little bit of yellow. Even their old warm-ups had like the a little side stripe that was light blue and pink. And uh, you go to something that seems so generically dull. It doesn't inspire anything, but man, they're good. I mean, even the Patriots colors, they're, they're red, white, and blue or some sort of red, white, and blue. And even then, I think that's is a bland logo compared to, uh, was it uh, Patriot Pat? And, you know, or was it Pat the Patriot? Or I always get them confused. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. not like it's Buccaneer Bruce. Buccaneer Bruce, those colors, I know people who are Bucks fans, they don't like the creamsicle, but man. That creamsicle, I go back and I remember when I first started watching yeah. the Redskins, the Buccaneers had those white helmets, the creamsicle uniforms, and man, those were more inspiring than what they've gone to now. Did you see the uh, the new Jets uniforms? Are they like sort of retro to like the Boomer Esiason days or? A little bit, uh, but like the, 
I want to say the font for the numbers and letters is like very modern. Um, everybody hates them, but I think they look pretty cool. But they are not popular with Jets fans. But whatever. <laughs> I, I think they look kind of cool. You know, they're keeping the same colors, which is good. It's always interesting to me when, when teams change their colors. Like that is, like Vancouver changed, the uh, Canucks changed their colors. Like, that's weird. How do you do that? You know? Like when teams do that, I'm always like, that's really weird to me. Yeah, the Wizards and Caps, that failed experiment from red, white, and blue to that uh, blue, gold, and black. Oh, yeah. I think that was always a marketing ploy just by a Poland just to, okay, now you can pay for the throwbacks if you like them so much. <laughs> oh, exactly, yeah. Right. Now, I mean, the Islanders, uh, <laughs> they went to like a teal... Teal base logo. You remember the fish thing? The Gordon. <laughs> I'm gonna say the Gordon's fisherman. That's all I can think of when I think of the Islanders. And then, man, everybody hated those. And then all of a sudden, what was it maybe like five years? Then they went back to the old ones. Not even like two. They couldn't <laughs> even make it two. And they were like, no, no change. Islanders are the fucking worst, man. I am one of them, but like they just. Uh, <laughs> They act like everything is a big inconvenience, you know? So they went right back to it. I hated the fishermen back then. I kind of like it now. Like, I think it actually looks kind of sharp. Like, uh, like that teal jersey with like the, like some black jeans or something. I think that might should be a decent look. Like, I don't know. I, I, uh, I went to Islanders playoff game and, uh, I actually did see a couple people who had brought out their, their fisherman shirts from, whatever, you know, water they had them in. I was just like, wow, I haven't seen these in a long time. Wow, crazy. I am, oh, I'm just trying to think. There was some team that changed their logo that had a lot of uproar. Then they went back to, like, uh, a variation of their old logo with different color scheme, but I can't think of it. I I do like how the Sixers, after that weird sort of black and red phase with under Iverson, went back to the red, white, and blue. It just made sense. It's it works for them. I think red, white, and blue in general, like like you say with the Patriots, like it comes off looking bland, but for the Sixers, I, I can't see it any other way. Yeah, and I like the Wizards' faux bullets retro uh, look. I mean... That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was well needed because honestly, I was tired. They started going to those ugly gold uniforms with the black, the Gilbert Arenas days, and ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah get rid of everything that thinks of that horrible, horrible period where, as I call him, shoot him up, bang, bang, pulled out his guns in the <laughs> locker room. What a dummy. <laughs> what a dummy, man. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand. It's like, yeah, there was an era of good feelings there. All of a sudden, clear the palette from that awful Jordan era where they basically oh, traded yeah. most of their best players to end up to Detroit. And then... The Jordan era was there to clear your mind of, man, they blew up the Weber-Howard bullets. Yeah. And basically, the Weber-Howard bullets, and my first time as being a Bullets fan, was the only time I saw optimism. Because basically, they hadn't been good for almost 15 years by that point. And seeing how bad the NBA was, they made it as the eighth seed a couple times. And they were like 10 games under 500 because that's how bad the East was. And that's yeah. before the Magic the Heat, the Hornets all came into the league, and they were still making the playoffs. And, yeah, I think 
that was the first era of good feelings. All of a sudden, they make the Bulls earn that sweep in like 96, 97. I'm like, man, this is going to be a good team to build around. And then, nope. Gilbert Arenas incident, they should have changed the name back to the board. Maybe that was a sign. Oh, that should have been the sign, man. Hey, lean into the meta part. Lean into the meta part. Hey, always, man. But, yeah, I know we were talking about, especially your path to journalism and how you got out of journalism. And, honestly, I will print journalism, I guess we can say, because my career as well sort of got derailed like that. And I always... Feel like when I talk about it, yeah. I try not to sound like I'm bitter about it, and eh, it's not easy. <laughs> it is definitely not easy. But as yeah. I mentioned, maybe a while back, it's almost been a year ago. I got let go from my job at the News Journal in Delaware, and honestly, at the time, it was a crappy feeling because made it worse was end up working half a day, and it's just like you tell me, "Oh, we're letting you go." which is cool. You yeah. could have just told me that earlier and I wouldn't have to come in. I've seen people get let go on their days off. Oh, yeah. I've seen oh. people, even at the Daily Times, who were basically told you only have 15 minutes, uh, pack up your stuff and go. I was one of them. Yeah, I mean, basically, most of the sports department I saw ended up having that whole thing. Yeah. It's, um... I'm sorry it happened to you, man. I, I really am. And, uh... And you're okay. I, I would say that you are... It's okay to be, to be a little bitter about it. It will fade. And what I started, you know, what I started telling people was that, oh yeah, I, I retired. I'm a retired sports writer. <laughs> and I retired at, at 26 or however old that was. I don't remember. But like, no, I mean, you know, it's a tough business. And it's really, what it came down to for me there in the last years of the times was I'm getting paid nothing. And I'm busting my ass like 50, 60 hours a week, not getting any overtime, driving all over the Eastern Shore, you know, like, uh, things are far away now, <laughs> you know, like, maybe you gotta do like a feature story in Delmar and then you got a basketball game in Pocomo, and guess what, you've driven 130 miles that day, you know what I mean, like... Or Crisfield, um, man, imagine going to Crisfield. Yeah. Nothing against Crisfield. It is very, very far away. If you use that per scale, go on 13 all the way down to Crisfield, Maryland, which literally is the end of the earth because it is basically yeah. water beyond that. Again, not saying anything bad about Crisfield. I'm just giving you a description. I don't want anybody to think that I'm talking bad about the town. It's a very nice town, but the length and the distance it is between everywhere else makes it a very long trip. You think they got internet in Crisfield yet, though? I mean, come on, man. They got smartphones, so you gotta have internet. <laughs> no, I, I, again, I don't want the Crisfield gang emailing me either. But, um, no, I, I do like Crisfield enough, too. But, yeah, no, it's just like, uh, things are far away down there. So, I was driving all these miles, and we were getting like, back then, we were getting like 24 cents a mile or something. Gas had gotten expensive, like, it was barely covering the cost. And so I was getting a little burned out. And um, and then as you remember, as we were talking about in the pre-show, you know, they came up with this form, this nine page document that every person in the newsroom had to sign that said, basically absolved them from, uh, or it would give them a mechanism for, for absolving them of any liability in the event of a, a crash while 
we were driving our cars through company time. And you know? that we would be drug tested on the spot once the accident happened. Right. By whom? They never said by whom. Yeah. They never said any of this stuff. Like, what? Fucking Greg Bass is going to come down there and maybe piss in a cup? I don't see that happening. Like, I mean, I don't know. The whole thing was shady. And I actually took it to a lawyer and I was like, can you just read this thing for me? He didn't charge me anything. He just read it and uh, he was just like, don't sign this. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, this is a terribly written document that probably won't hold up in court, but they will try and then you'll have to defend yourself, you know? Like, and I was just like thinking to myself, I was like, it is not worth it. It's not worth it, you know? Like, to get this $24,000 a year and have to put up with this. On addition to, in addition to all the other stresses that went along with that job of not having enough hands to carry the load and, you know, everything else. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna sign this. And uh, I, I said, we can, maybe you can edit it. I actually, there was these mistakes in it too. I actually turned in a copy uh, you know, because I was an editor too. So I was like, uh, we got to correct this punctuation right here. This comma is not in the right place. Thank you. And, you know, they didn't really appreciate that so much. But, you know, it's, I think there was like a period of deliberation of like, I don't know, a week or two or something. And then finally, uh, they, not, not the, uh, not the editor of the newspaper. I think he was on vacation that day. It was the uh, HR person, which they no longer have anymore. They don't have any HR people? It's all centralized in, like, oh, Tennessee wow. or Kentucky now. Wow. Because I had to call, when I had to get my exit stuff, basically, yeah, I had to call a number in Kentucky or Tennessee or whatever. You had to call a number? Yes! I had to call a number. Uh, you better call me. I'm not calling anybody. Man, you can text me. Look, I... Because I was even, you know, this HR person who can me... She was from, she had to come down from Delaware to do it. Like, she came down from Wilmington. And um, I was like, wow, I'm being fired by somebody I don't even work for. This is cool. And, and <laughs> somebody I don't even know. But yeah, and then, you know, it was the same thing. It was, uh, let me watch you pick up, you know, pack up your desk. And that was that. Like, you know, and, but the thing, but I kind of knew it was going to happen. So I had, I had some warning, you know in comparison to yours, which seemed to have happened out of the world. And, you know, I, um, at that time, you know, that was right when Fernando Guerrero was, was, uh, uh, you know, making a name for himself in amateur boxing. And, um, you know, I had gotten to know his, his coach, Hal Chernoff, and, and Fernando pretty well from covering him. And, you know, I saw, it's just, talking to Hal is, oh yeah, it's a, you know, kind of a rough situation, you know, and it kind of helped me come up with this idea of offering uh, freelance coverage to, you know, smaller newspapers all over the country about their amateur boxers at all these tournaments, you know, because they had the Golden Gloves tournament in, I think it was in Tennessee, they had, that year they had the Olympic qualifying tournament in Colorado and so what I did is I ended up just uh, showing up to these I had press credentials from I was able to get press credentials as a freelancer and I ended up just showing up to these tournaments and just 
hustling for freelance gigs. Like I would just see where this guy's hometown was. Where's he? You know, where's he live? All right, cool. Contact the newspaper there. Be like, listen, I'll get you a you know ten inch story, and you know we can do some photos if you want to feature. I can do that. And yeah, so I did that. I kind of fell into that after the Daily Times, and that was really fun. I did that for like you know almost a year basically but that was just because everybody was trying to qualify for the olympics for the beijing olympics that that time so 2008 but um that was a really cool experience for me and uh and and, uh and yeah so i kind of fell into that thankfully but it's a real thankless job and i knew i didn't want to do it anymore because you really have to love it because If you don't, it's no point in doing it. I liked it a lot. I loved writing,、um, but I I didn't love the atmosphere, and I didn't love being mistreated by my job, you know, and like being taken advantage of. And I definitely don't love like the way they act, like you owe them something, you know, for them giving you a job. It's like no, I can go do a lot of other things. You know what I mean? I don't know what you should. That's my thing. That's always been my attitude. So for me, it wasn't going to work as a sports journalist because、uh, I've always, I'm always kind of like, I mean, the fact that I never made, you know, all throughout college, I was a cook. You know, I worked at Secrets,、uh, I worked at、uh, Ruby Tuesday. I never made more money writing than I did cooking food. So,、uh, you know, and I was like, and I always had that in the back of my mind. I was like. You guys are talking to me like I've never had a job before. No, I've been working, you know, other jobs. Like you can't look at this paycheck and tell me it's worth what you, the, the bullshit you're giving me. You know. Yeah. No, and I understand. It's like, and I go back to my first couple of years. Bassett basically had to give me pay raises to put me on equal par with everybody. First, I think pay raise I got was like three percent, and then I got like a seven percent raise to just get to that level of twenty-four something, and I never got another pay raise after that. And then I see other people get brought in who are making more than me and just starting. So how, especially at that point when I just got relegated to being a copy editor and not a reporter, so not only are you paying more people, you put me on a job I don't like. Right. That I get no freedom and I'm working nights because hey, why can't I work days? For since I had seniority out of all the people who were on the copy desk, so I miss out on doing trivia. That was one thing I always used to sort of okay unwind from the day of doing the sports and all this other stuff. You know what? I'll get everything done. I'll either do write some stuff early in the day. I'll get in early, get out, go to the Green Turtle, do trivia with my friends. Couldn't do that anymore. I was stuck there till ten.、Yeah. I was not very happy about it. I guess the only thing that came out of that whole experience was probably around May or so of 2015. They had the online test for Sports Jeopardy, and I'm sitting there because hey, I have nothing else to do. All the papers have been put to bed hours ago. I do the online test, and that's like okay, okay, that's cool. And then. When I get the call, I've already moved to、uh, Delaware, and、yeah. then that led to a whole thing there. And then, oh boy, talk about thankless! Thankfully, they finagled ways for me to actually go to LA, but I still had to work. Coming back the day after I came back from LA to work on the desk and work remotely. Well, I had to work remotely, and I've had the supervisor who was at the desk. She got laid off too.、Uh, so, I mean, as I would say, my dick gently weeps for you. But,、um, oh yeah, so. When it comes to going down to Salisbury, and I'm working those days, I understand that, and I was just like, "Hey, can I work remotely?" And I had to work out of the Daily Times. No issue with that. I hadn't worked out of the Daily Times office in almost like five years, but at time. So working there, but yet 
if you want to work remotely, you could work from home. That doesn't sound right. Wait, so... She could work remotely from home, and where she was living in Dover. But I couldn't work remotely from a friend's house as long as I have reliable internet. I had to work in the Daily Times. In the Daily Times building. Which there still wasn't enough stuff. I didn't have a charger there. They didn't have a dock for us to use a laptop. So I'm basically just plugged in. It's like, no, it doesn't make any sense. It always felt to me that the management structure uh, at the Times, at the Journal, and you know the whole parent company and everything was, I mean, yeah, it was exploitative. I don't know if I said that word right, but you know what I mean. And, yeah, they exploited you, yeah. And it was that. But it was also like, not only was it that, but it was set up so that those who were either the publishers, the editors, you know, not the copy desk, not the, not really the boots on the ground, but like the top four people didn't really have to do a lot, it seems. You know what I mean? Like they weren't that hands on. Um, I only worked in a couple of newsrooms, so I don't know. But like, I just, you know, I was just like, what are you guys? You just sit around all day, you don't do anything. Like, you worked in Vermont, right? Yeah. I'm trying to think, did you cross paths with Mike Killian? He was, uh, he may have worked there. I know he was executive editor recently, and and he Did was executive. Name? Mike Killian? Michael Killian? Maybe. Was that at the, uh, the Burlington newspaper? Yeah. I mean, because he ended up becoming the, the Salisbury person. He had to do a lot of cleanup jobs after uh, Bassett was let go. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, that name, I The name rings a bell. Actually, I might have worked with him at some point, or, you know been around him and met him. But. Oh yeah, because Mike's a good guy and he was one of the people I like when I was doing job hunting, he said, whenever you need a reference, let me know. And yeah. it's like he helped me out. And like, yeah, I feel like newspapers or sort of like radio where the odds are you're gonna cross path with people down the road two or three times because especially it seems like it's such a small fraternity, except for it seems like in print journalism it's easier to get into than it is in radio. Yeah. Interesting. More outlets, you think? That's the weird thing. I think radio has more outlets, but I just think trying to get into that small group now, especially with everything being so reduced, they're always going to need help in print journalism. Right. I don't know so much in radio. But I mean, I like the radio job that I'm doing. It's just, it was very hard to get back into. It was right. easier to first go around because I had people who were very connected who were able to get me in. And I still know plenty of people from radio days working in different places that are still working in radio. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I never tried for, for radio or TV. I, I, it was never, didn't appeal to me. I don't know why. Well, radio kind of, you know, I did like a little radio show in the first college I went to, you know, but... I don't know. There's something about the newsroom. That is what I was appealing to me. Like, that atmosphere was cool. Like, that's what I was looking for. You know, it was like, or theoretically, that's what I was looking for. That's what I thought I was looking for. You know, it's like a bunch of, like, smart people working together to put out a product, you know? And, like, under crazy deadlines. You know, speed, gallows humor, you need all that stuff, you know? I think it trained me a lot, for sure. But I will say that a toxic newsroom environment will kill all that. Yeah, and I had saw it in Salisbury at one point until changes were made thanks to a dumb little prank that basically <laughs> changed everything. And honestly, it changed it for the better. Yeah, good. I always think of there's this video on YouTube 
where it's like everything goes great with the guile thing from Street Fighter, and it's the one video where the guy finds out on Mori he's not the father. <laughs> and when I tried to not be happy of people getting fired, but this one person, who I will not mention the name because people who I work with who work in Salisbury probably know who I'm talking about, got fired. And even then, I think they did him dirty at the end of the day. They had him work the whole week, and then on the end of the day of a Friday, he got fired. And I just remember to this day, he mumbles, I can't believe it, I just got canned. I look at a coworker. I feel like putting too many names out here would uh, basically tell the situation, but I look at a coworker, and I look at him, and I say, did I just hear what I thought I heard? (laughs) And then... That was probably the most unproductive hour or two that occurred. Yeah. And that also was followed earlier in the week by a reporter being let go. Over the dumbest prank in the world. Yeah. Which could have easily been handled if people had common decency or had a thought of common sense in them. Yeah, and it was the stupidest prank. Yeah. Because I always tell people the whole story just about what happened, and it's like... I'll preface it with this. It was a dumb prank that involved the police getting called. And this easily could have been solved by saying, hey, it's a prank that went wrong. That's all it was. That's all could have been done. Right. And it could have probably been solved. There would have been no issue. But then Bassett has to write a letter from the editor on the front page of the paper (laughs) talking about the reporter's resign. And it's like, what in the world? It doesn't make any sense. And... And then after that, I'll say this, Mike comes in and helps clean up a lot of this stuff. And I think that helped a lot before he ends up moving on to going to Cincinnati, which, I mean, he's flourished in his career. He's been number two in Cincinnati, was the number one in Burlington. And I think he oversees, like, the stuff in western New York. And that's definitely, yeah. And that's all been in, like, five years. Wow. Yeah. So it's just crazy. But, yeah, I feel like, oh, you shouldn't tell family business. Hey, I haven't named names, and at this point... The people who know about this story would not disagree with me. I didn't call out people's names, which I feel like sometimes if you watch a TV show that's based on somebody's life, they've changed the names to protect the guilty. Ah, yes, yes. Well, you know, they, uh, all that stuff is public anyway, you know? Oh, yeah. I don't think you said or did anything incorrect, you know? And uh, I think to be honest, like, we're holding back a lot, which is <laughs> everybody should be thankful for. <laughs> yeah, I could easily name names and just talk about situations yeah. of wrongness that occurred in the newsroom. But Why bother? Water under the bridge. Yeah, water under the bridge that could easily have been napalmed. <laughs> and it's, the cool thing of being able to talk to people who've had a lot of people we've been in the trenches with. Uh that have had journalism experience and it's interesting to hear their stories as well and it's like yeah it's very interesting they know what it's like to work under a deadline they understand the experiences of either working the crime beat working high school sports working straight news and it's like i feel like yeah that's good for anybody who might be aspiring journalists who ends up listening to this. It's like, yeah, this is maybe a microcosm of what people might experience in newsrooms. But again, a lot of this stuff was about 10 years ago. Right. I can only imagine now, and what I was in the newsroom basically up till March 2018, and 
as I've said before, there's nothing sadder seeing the state of newspapers than seeing a newsroom and what attrition has done to it. Yeah, I'd imagine. I didn't even see it before it got super bad, you know? Yeah, and even then, it's gotten to the point where I feel like the Philadelphia News Journal staff is around the size that the Daily Times had when I started in wow. 08, 09. That's how bad it is. Wow, that's that's tiny. I mean, yeah. that's a big area. Yeah. Northern Delaware is not Ames, Iowa. Like, you need people. Especially if you're covering, like, Philadelphia sports. Yeah. And you're supposed to be the state of record in the state of Delaware, yet you only cover down south sparingly. But, yeah, they don't even cover the state capital as much. They don't have, like, a... Uh, somebody in Dover all the time or a couple people like I think that Dover person left to work for the state wow <laughs> smart move smart hey nothing wrong with getting that happens, in shoot that happens a lot man like a lot of the uh, journalists I knew in Baltimore I knew a lot of the journalists in Baltimore just um, through my friends and like even though I wasn't in journalism when I lived there and uh, oh yeah yeah every so often Somebody who used to cover the Annapolis team would get hired by the state to be someone's uh, communications director for a politician or like, you know, the connections you make. When you want to get out of journalism, you want to have a nice uh, parachute if you can, you know? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and in that case, it seems like you're floating up when oh, you leave yeah. journalism. You're like, you look at your paycheck and you're like, what the hell? I will say this. When I moved to the New Journal, I made double than what I was making in Salisbury. I was making 50000 just to copy edit. Wow. But sometimes when you think about it, the money might not even be worth it just to not feel like there's any upward mobility, feel like your talents or abilities are wasted. Yeah. Sometimes oh, money I mean, can't help. It's not worth sticking around if you're unhappy anywhere. Yeah. You know? Like, sometimes you have to stick around until you find the next thing or until whatever. But, like, you know, since I left journalism, I've been stuck at a few places that I haven't like and it's taken me some time to to do what i had to do to move on but like you know like you say man every day above ground is a good one but you can make it better if you don't have to go to a job you hate every day you know like that's life's too short to do that you know yeah and i don't know if you heard the interview i did with ricky pollard who's the only sports reporter in salisbury uh, but I talk about the Bowser moment where in Super Mario Brothers when you're going across the bridge and you take the axe out of the bridge and Bowser, you know, he feels his feet seeing where he's at and then falls into lava. Basically, oh that was how my time in the news journal ended. It was the Bowser moment. It's like, oh, crap, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, and then I sit home for months, unemployed, looking for jobs, had an interview, bombed that one, and then turn around just try to figure out what am I going to do. I keep applying, I keep applying, job interviews come up, I don't make it past the next round, and then I connect with Randy Scott. He helped yeah. me get a connection to get a job and back in radio. So yeah, Randy, was, if you do hear the podcast, I do thank you for helping me with that. And yeah, it helped me get back in radio. Oh yeah, him and Whiskey, yeah, they are doing their show on uh, Froggy 99.9 now. Oh, they've been there for a while. Actually, they simulcast in the radio station in Delaware too. But yeah, Randy definitely helped me get in connections with this job. And it's crazy. I hadn't did a radio demo since I was in college. 
Yeah. And that was a radio demo I used to get into start working at Clear Channel like in the mid 2000s before I moved on to Delmar right. for broadcasting. And then, so I'm like, I have no demo. I have no idea. So I ended up whipping together a demo in like an hour to send to them. I get this call while I'm in Chicago while my wife's doing an internship. Because right now I have nothing to do. I'm unemployed. And I'm like, hey, let's, you might as well. I was going to plan yeah. to go out to Chicago anyway. And so, like, yeah. hey, I get the phone call. It's like, yeah, we'd like to meet you or do an interview on the phone. And then next thing I know, it's like, come late June, I get hired. And then I'm doing radio stuff. And that was, I don't want to call it a lifesaver. That's like those people who say, I didn't rescue the rescue dog. The dog rescued me. That's one of the dumbest terms I've ever heard, and I feel like it's so pretentious. The dog can't save you from stupid decisions. You have to save dogs from stupid decisions. Like, hey, I'm going to try to cross this road with these cars coming. That is you rescuing them. But so, yeah, I get the job, and I feel like, hey, I have a purpose again. I'm doing something. I'm working. Then I start getting the bug again, and it's like, well... You know, I got this extra time. Why don't I do a podcast? I bought this equipment a year plus ago, and it's just sitting here. Yeah. And then I'm like, hey, let's do it. And I just start working on it, and that's what spurred me to go on to do this. And then next thing I know, I'm having a string of job interviews. Uh, I feel like I'm doing well in it. And then come October or so, I'm like, yeah, we'd like to hire you. You start in November. And I'm like, okay, wow. And since then, if people have seen some of my possibly passive-aggressive uh, Instagram notes about, hey, this job better than the old job. That is <laughs> basically a sign that, one, we had a Christmas party at yeah. this new job at a theater in New Jersey. Yeah. Two, we got Christmas bonuses. A bonus? What is that you say for you print journalist people? I don't even know this word. Uh, yeah, I got a bonus, and I haven't even been there a, a whole two months, and I still got like a $60 bonus. Other people were getting higher, which I don't care. A bonus is a bonus. It'll probably be higher if they still do it come December. But, yeah, I feel like I'm finally back on solid ground. I've been working there six months, and it's nuts. And the first time I ever, well, I can't say first job-related trip, because, you know, you drive up to College Park for state championship game, that or Aberdeen to state championship game, those are your work trips. But I had my first work trip going to New Orleans in March, March 2019. And, yeah, that was an experience that was unlike something I'd ever found in a newspaper. Yeah, yep. And yeah, and I feel like after that, the bitterness and anger has dissipated somewhat. It's just still ridiculous. And like I said, I don't even, the only time I read the news journal was, hey, I'm proofreading this stuff that has to go into the paper. Right. And you know, it'll take some time. You know, you're going to feel that for a while. It's a, uh, it's almost like a breakup. You know, it's like, uh, it's going to sting. And. You know, but uh, you're in a better place. And you know what? Like, go ahead and be petty about that with the little uh, Instagram posts about the good food and stuff. I saw that one, huh? And the, uh, you know, like, um, fuck it, why not? <laughs> you don't always have to be uh, the better. It's not even about being the better person. It's just like, no, oh, fuck it. I was wrong. And this is how I feel now. And I don't feel bad about that, you know? But yeah, no, it'll subside, it'll just take some time. I just, just remember it from my own, uh, as I say, retirement from uh, print media, uh, you know. But like, that's the thing, is like, like I said, you know, they have it in their minds that this is the only thing that you can do. And they even limited 
what you could do in the newsroom. They said, uh-uh, we don't see any path forward for you. We just want you to do this copy editing and go home. And, you know, you said, I got all these other talents that are being wasted. And they said, oh, well, whatever, we don't care. And you just, you know, I find that I have that chip on my shoulder is, is always, always been beneficial for me. Like, I can do a lot of things. You know what I mean? Like, I can go get a job somewhere else and I don't have to be here. So what I'm saying is, there's nothing wrong with being petty. Uh, get your petty out. And, uh, you know, you can be the dignified uh, statesman once it's passed. Yeah. You know? I, yeah, I saw like an Instagram or Facebook post. It's like, man. How petty are you? And then you see the 43 STP car. It's like, that petty. <laughs> <laughs> oh. NASCAR joke. Oh. The only thing that would have been funnier is like if it was Richard Petty, Tom Petty, and every, Lori Petty, you know, every Petty in the world. Lori Petty. <laughs> yeah. Tank Girl. Yeah. <laughs> I would really say, how many people saw her in Tank Girl? Apparently no one. And who knew that, that wow. Ice-T was in there as like a mutated dog or something? I forgot about that. Yep. Probably an example of when comic book movies went wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that movie at all, but uh, I really don't know. I just remember Lori Petty on the tank. That's all. That's my only image. I, I, don't, I probably watched it five times, so I don't remember it at all. Not really a good sign when it doesn't stick with you. Yeah. I've never seen Barb Wire, but he, everybody probably knows the one picture of like Pamela Anderson doing like the Charlie's Angels Pamela pose. Anderson. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. But I yeah. Watch yeah, yeah. Nothing wasted. Nothing gained. Yeah, yeah. I know now you work in transportation as well. That's very interesting, and it's like we were talking, trying to put this together. It seems like you worked the European work week, the four ten-hour days. Oh yeah, man. Yep. That's what I do. I love it. Yeah. On Mondays, I usually work from home, too, unless I got something to do in my office. So, it works really well for me. And I don't have kids. Like, if I had kids, like, I'd want to be there in the afternoon, but I don't mind getting home at, like, 7.30 in the evening, you know. So, uh, work from home Mondays, so I get that extra hour or two of sleep. You know, I can just wake up and log on and start working. And uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, those are the days that, Nothing really happens on like Mondays and Fridays. You know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is when all my meetings are. It's when all the, the phone calls are. It's when all the fires are started that we have to put out by Thursday. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so yeah, that's good. And then Friday's off, and uh, and yeah, it's pretty nice. I gotta say, I, I, I enjoy it a lot. How did you have an interest in transportation? I got into transportation um, after I left the Daily Times or after the Daily Times left me and after I did my, my little freelancing tour with the boxing for a couple months I kind of had you know nothing better to do and my best friend Trevor had just moved to Seattle because um, he also lost his job on some dubious circumstances he was living in Kansas City and, um, you know, he had a girlfriend there, and, and he, the whole thing fell apart for him, like, in a couple months. So he was like, wow, shit, I'm, I'm out of luck here in Kansas City. And his mom was in the Navy, and they were living overseas. His parents were living overseas in Germany. His mom was the commander of the Navy. And um, so his mom was retiring from the Navy to Seattle. And so Trevor was like, well, I got nothing else to do. I'm going to move to Seattle and go live with my parents. 
moves to Seattle and uh, they invite me to go spend a week out there and check it out. I checked it out. First time I'd ever been really, you know, up that way at all. And I loved it. I, right away, I was like, I love this town. This is great. It's very cool, you know, mild weather. And uh, I just liked the vibe of it. And I was into it. And uh, like the most beautiful city I'd ever been to at that point. So I was like, cool. So I moved to Seattle. Yeah, after all that. And I stayed in the garage of, it was like a converted rec room garage. But I would say it was only like half converted. It's still partially a garage. But yeah, I stayed in my friend's parents' garage. And uh, and yeah, in Seattle, I did all kinds of stuff. I, I had a couple freelance writing gigs. I wrote um, for this online, for this, it was a website about like, this is like 2006, 07, so like, you know, environmental stuff was was really cool then, you know, I think it maybe it's faded a little bit, but like, I was writing about like energy efficient washing machines and shit like that, and uh, alternative fuel something, I don't even remember what else I was doing with that. So yeah, I had that, I still had a couple of like boxing stories that I would get every now and then, and I was selling cameras at a department store, and I worked briefly, I had a number of odd jobs. I worked briefly for this guy who made like custom stained glass. That was really cool. I learned how to like make these old school window frames and make them look nice. Tangents, man, I swear. Right. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Coming back to it. So yeah, so I was in Seattle and I really liked the town, great vibe. And that was really the first time like I had, you know, outside of New York that I had lived somewhere where there was, you know, some kind of viable public transportation and you know I would just ride the bus everywhere I'd ride the bus to get to work I had my car out there but you know I found that actually the, the bus was more convenient a lot of times and, and less expensive and uh, I just got really into using the bus and that's the first time I had got a bike you know as an adult as the first time I rode a bike like for transportation out there so I had gotten a bike you know and I found Seattle to be like pretty cool to ride in so I just you know take these long bike rides and so I got in the train like that and then so after a year in Seattle I got a job in Baltimore and I was like all right yeah I know Baltimore's got like a bus and the subway like one subway line the light rail I was like I'm gonna try to keep doing this public transportation thing in Baltimore and after like couple months of trying that to get to my new job, the transportation system was so unreliable that I would just consistently be late to work. Like, you know, buses wouldn't show up. Nothing worked. The Baltimore transportation system at that time was just, the whole thing was a disaster. And, you know, I was like thinking to myself, I'm like, well, first of all, like, that's really messed up because people rely on this to get where they have to go. I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I have the option to get in my car and drive, and I don't think it's going to work for me. But, you know, this is a city where 50% of people are, you know, close to or below the poverty line. I mean, this is real fucked up. You know, how are people going to get ahead if they can't make it to their job or school on uh, you know? So that kind of stuck with me. You know? And I started doing a lot of research just about transportation networks and why certain things are the way they are. I started, you know, I was just Googling and like going down Wikipedia holes so much that I was like, maybe I can study this. Like maybe there's something I can do for this, like as a job or like as a career. 
I just started looking into it, and I found that you know, Morgan State University in Northeast Baltimore had a master's program for transportation and urban infrastructure studies. Right away, I emailed the dean of the department. I was like, look, I got a liberal arts background. I took one math class in, uh, in college, statistics, and I got a seat. And, you know, like, I don't have any engineering chops. But I was like, I'm very passionate about this, and I think that I can pick up what I need to learn as far as the math is concerned. And, and he said, all right, cool. You know, we're going to admit you uh, on probation for one semester. You have to get all these are better, and then we'll go from there, which is really cool because a lot of universities, they don't work with you like that, you know. I was really uh, fortunate to have that opportunity at Morgan to do that, you know, to, without having a background in prerequisite courses or anything. So, yeah, so I ended up uh, over the course of several years earning a master's degree in it and learned all about public transportation and, you know, freight transportation, the economics of it, why things move from A to B and how much it costs and why we want to subsidized part of that cost and not this part of that, you know, all the details of it. It was really, really interesting stuff. And then I started looking for jobs, ended up getting one with the uh, Federal Transit Administration, uh, and that's where I currently work in New York. Um, any bus you see driving down the road, Federal Transit Administration probably paid for about 80% of that bus, you know. Any train you see, we paid for 80, 85% of it, like, there's so much federal money in public transportation. And so what we do is we evaluate what people want to do and we dole out the money and then we uh, make sure it's being spent wisely. So I'm extremely fortunate because uh, I, <laughs> I actually love my job and I'm very passionate about you know our mission and what we do because public transportation, it benefits everybody even if you don't use it because all those people on the bus are not driving. You know, and that, that limits congestion. So, but I, I've worked on all kinds of stuff. I mean, our region is just the New York, New Jersey area, but New York City has subways and trains. You know, we're just one little area, but we, we spend like half the money for transit in the whole country. So, um, so we always have a lot of interesting things going on. It's interesting when you talk about transportation. I know you've probably heard about these new underground, what I think. I'm not sure what the term is. The hyperloops that they're trying the to hyperloops. do. Hyperloops. Hyperloops, yeah. It's snake oil. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because they're talking about, oh, we could make a trip from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh end up going like 33 minutes as opposed to a drive across state. I'll be real, real, uh, real impressed if that ever happens. There's not been any real successful tests or prototypes or anything. You know, it's, it's Elon Musk He's kind of a cult of personality guy, and people want to be kind of like affiliated with him or whatever he's into. The technology exists to move people very fast between cities. It's called rail, it's called high-speed rail, like they have in Europe and Japan and most industrialized nations that aren't in North America. But the loops, there's a couple economic problems with it. One is the capacity, it, it, it's very low capacity. He's talking about moving a fraction of what a train moves. And, you know, you think about how many people is on that Amtrak train, like you were trying to go from uh, Wilmington to New York and how expensive it was. 
And that's with, you know, 1,200 people sharing the cost. You know, this thing is only going to have, uh, I, I, the capacity is like a tiny fraction of that, whatever it is. So you have way fewer people trying to share the cost of moving this great distance. So I don't think it's going to work for that. And then also, you know, it's just, uh, again, it's not some existing technology that he's trying to improve upon. There's not like a body of research dedicated to this. This is all just sales. You know, it's all just one guy saying, I've got the solution. And that's, I'll put it to you like this. I was at called TRB, Transportation Research Board, the biggest transportation conference probably in the world. It takes place in Washington, D.C. every January. I was there this January, and, you know, you've got 10,000 people from all over the world, academics, researchers, industry people, all presenting what they're working on, like what the research is, what kind of problems they're trying to solve, what kind of innovations they're trying to build. I saw not one thing about the Hyperloop, not one thing in that whole week. I was no presentations, no posters, no like, you know, academic research, nothing. It's just him. He's trying to do this thing on his own. And if it happens, I'll be really surprised if this is ever a real thing. But it feels a lot like the monorail episode from Simpsons. We put places like North Haverbrook and whatever, whatever the name of the other town. We put all these places on the map, you know? Monorail! I was going to ask you, what do you think is going to be more likely? Commercial space travel or the Hyperloop? I would say commercial space travel. I really would. Because it already exists. We already know how to put people in space. Hyperloop sounds like something that he was having a couple beers. Well, he smokes weed, too. So he was having a couple tokes, too, one night. And was like, oh, man. I'm going to invent this thing called the Hyperloop. You know, like, I got this friend. He's one of my best friends. I know he doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'm still not going to use his name. And uh, he's always on these ideas for, like, inventions. And, like, he's like, yeah, man. He's like, I came up with this engine that runs on water. And I'm working on the plans for it. I'm like, all right, man, that's cool. <laughs> like, I know it's not going to work the way you think it's going to work, but, you know, have at it. I imagine Elon Musk is like Jim Brewer's character in Half-Baked. I just imagine Yeah! That. Yeah! It's Jim Brewer from Half-Baked with a lot of money and whatever. I, I don't even know if he has an engineering background. Maybe he does. He might. I was going to say, speaking of Jim Brewer and you being a Mets fan, have you seen him at City Field? Never have, no. Yeah, I know they apparently do all the traveling around and everything and like the... Seven-Line Army. Seven-Line Army, yeah, and they all go to the games and all that other stuff. And yeah. These guys are nuts. That's a level of dedication to the map that I can't have. <laughs> Too much. I guess when comparing cities, Seattle to Baltimore to New York, how did they stand out and separate each other from themselves? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. They're all extremely different. Um... Yeah, like Seattle is beautiful, like the nature and scenery is gorgeous. You have these snow-capped mountains, you know, when it's not raining and you can see them. Uh, and there's a real connection to nature there. Like if you drive 45 minutes in any direction, then you're going to be in some kind of national forest. Mount Rainier, Olympic National Park, like, so if you like the outdoors and, you know, 
getting away from people and stuff that it's a really nice place for that um the vibe recently like as i lived there the vibe kind of changed a little bit i lived there in two stints right the first time i lived there uh i don't know maybe it was just because i was younger but it felt more accessible like like i was 25 and like my friend and i you know we would have like all these girls we knew that that were bartenders or waitresses or whatever and they all lived in these little apartments in this cute little neighborhood called capitol hill and now uh-uh if you're working a service job you're living 25 minutes away at least all those apartments are occupied by like amazon employees google google employees like tech is like it's always been a big high-tech job city, but it's exploding there now. Like, I think 30,000 people work at Amazon headquarters downtown. It's huge. So for Seattle, tech is definitely like, it's beautiful, it's fun, there's a lot to do, but tech is kind of enveloping the whole city. Like, if you're not a part of it, it feels kind of weird because everybody works in that field, you know? And if you don't, like I did, and it was like, okay what do we even talk to you about you know so socially it was a little a little weird but uh baltimore is cool i mean it, it is uh you know my the hometown of the lineage on my father's side and uh i've always felt at home there because i spent so much time there growing up um baltimore is stuck in the past it is perpetually like 1970 there, I feel like, I don't know. I guess it is making some progress, but it's still, it's uneven. The progress there doesn't really benefit everybody in the city. It's like, if you're young and white, it's pretty cool. You know, everybody else is like, just gotta deal with it. And I don't know, I found Baltimore to be one of like, the friendliest places I've ever lived. Uh, everybody's, and everybody's really funny there. Everybody in Baltimore is the best sense of humor. And, uh, everything's a joke all the time like everybody's just cracking jokes i really appreciated that um you know but i did like living there a lot and um i love being able to go to orioles games anytime i wanted like tuesday night nothing to do i just go to orioles game you know um i lived in the city like a couple miles away it was, it was pretty easy i could ride my bike down to the ball game in like 15 20 minutes so um i it is a they do call it small more because it is like a small city. You run into the same people all the time, so that could be good or bad, depending on your perspective. And uh, yeah, so it was cool. I enjoyed it. I don't think I'll live there again. Um, I think I had my fun with it and I'm, I'm good. New York, um, New York's like no place in the world. It's one of a kind. <laughs> it's really tremendous, huge city. You do feel like you're just like one little speck here and completely unimportant and you rarely see people you know when you go out or anything um but uh I, i've really been enjoying it i've only been back for like two years but uh it's cool man i, I live in queens and uh like not too far from city field probably like a 20 minute subway ride from city field and um queens is cool man it's like the whole entire universe the whole entire world is here every culture is here and you can eat anything that's what I like. So, I mean, and I, I'm a pretty daring eater. I eat everything, uh, no matter what it is or if I could pronounce it. And, and uh, so, so that's really cool. I like that about, about Queens. And, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, Brooklyn, Queens has kind of escaped a little bit of the, like, uh, 
hipstery takeover like Brooklyn has, you know, which is cool. I like all that stuff too, you know, but um, Queens is kind of like a more, or it's more down to earth. It's nice. It's, it's not like, uh, it's, pr- it's pretty, most of the Queens is like really safe and I really like the vibe here for sure. And, uh, but yeah, New York in general is like, it is a very, it's very like, you know, it's the big city of dreams. That's what they say. But like, and, but it really is. Like, you can really can do anything here. If you can afford to rent and you want to do something or you want to start a business or you want to uh, be a musician, you want to whatever, this is the place, you know? Everything's here. I heard that they were going to make a McDowell's based on the one from Coming to America, and that was somewhere we were going to try to go one time when we were going to do this elaborate New York trip where we'd go to see someone boot off stage during amateur night, and uh, and then, of course, check that out and do a few other things, but it never came to be just due to a whole bunch of other stuff, and that was around the time I lost my job, too, so that had to be a little scrapped, but yeah, those are things I definitely wanted to try out, and we were talking about going to... Uh, City Field and catch a Mets game eventually in the near future to do that as well. Oh, yeah. Well, let me know, man. I'm always down. So that would be really cool. New York's great, man. And it's it's really not that far, you know? Like, you know, especially if you take the train, buy that ticket a month in advance or three weeks in advance, like 50 bucks each maybe, you know? Not so bad. But, yeah, yeah, New York's cool, man. You can do everything here. The Mets games are fun. And, and yeah, you can do the whole Coming to America tour. That's what I should do, man. I should start a side business doing Coming to America tours. That would be awesome. I think it would work. I, I really do think it would work, especially with number two coming up soon, eventually. The sequel that no one asked yeah. for, but, you know. Right. It's like, I'm just imagining that meme format. You know, it's like, nobody. And then it's like, coming soon, coming to America soon. So it's going to be both of them, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I think it's, yes, yeah, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio. Uh, I have no idea what the plot's about. They've been talking about it for so many years, but I don't know. It just seems like they missed the boat a long time ago. If they don't try to do too much with the plot, and they just let Arsenio and Eddie Murphy just be funny and just kind of like, just let them kind of be themselves and like be funny with each other, I think that'll be worth it, you know? Let's not expect Con with the Wind or Casablanca or anything here, you know what I mean? Like, let's just, you know, make it like a fun, like, stupid movie, and I'm in. Speaking of Casablanca, I was actually starting to watch that like a year ago, because I was into this whole phase of, yeah, I want to maybe try to do screenwriting or do something, and it was a very interesting movie. And you see Peter Laurie, and you can see, man, Steve Buscemi is like a dead ringer for him. Oh, true. Yeah, and <laughs> I just think, wow. Yeah, it's like if people are reincarnated, that is probably a perfect example. Yeah, that is, uh, Steve Buscemi's a weird-looking guy. But he has made that his brand, too. Like, to be, like, the weirdo. Kind of picked up with Christopher Walken. Well, Christopher Walken, uh, I guess it's, like, a different kind of thing, but Steve Buscemi. The fact that guy has, like, this amazing Hollywood career is crazy. Yeah, and especially among character actors, I mean, it, it doesn't hurt being in front of Adam Sandler either. That definitely doesn't hurt. Not at all. Not at all. But you know what, though? Like, Adam Sandler, I don't watch his movies, but I think they still make money. Like, he gets all these Netflix deals, but he's got, like, his crew that just, like, sit around and make movies. And they don't really, like, work for anyone else or, like, 
do anything else, you know? Like, I feel like it's kind of an insular kind of scene over there. And it's crazy. Chris Rock doesn't even need to work. I mean, he still gets his money. He'll still do his oh, yeah. Netflix specials. It's not like he has to work. I really like the Netflix special he did, was it, like two years ago, I feel like? Unstoppable? I can't remember, but that was really good. Well, he's still funny. You know, he's still... I don't know what it is. I, I've been a big Chris Rock fan for a long time, but like, he still connects with the audience so well. And I think in a way that... I like Dave Chappelle, too. I love Dave Chappelle, but like, I feel like... Well, you know, the other thing is that Chris Rock never stopped. He never really put it down. Dave Chappelle stopped and he had to kind of get back into it. But yeah, no, I, I think Chris Rock, he still is connecting with the projects that he does. Yeah, and it's like everybody knows this, that humor is very subjective. Somebody sure. might like a comedian that I think is absolutely awful. You know, you could say Dane Cook, Amy Schumer. Uh-huh, yeah. I think they're not funny. And there's think, no. I don't think they're funny either. Yeah, and there's plenty of people I think are funny. Some people are one note, but they're funny. But they yeah. play that one note so well. I was yeah. listening on my way to work. They had a thing about Philadelphia comics. What comedian do you want to see go? And they weren't really big names. The only one maybe like Michael Blackson. And that's the only person that I, I really had heard of. They didn't use yeah. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart was an example of very funny at the beginning and then just precipitous downfall to not being funny. Yeah, I guess yeah. Maybe it's like the hunger. If you're hungry, it's funny. And then after that, it's just not funny anymore. And I have right. particular comedians I like. I like Carlin. I like yeah. guys like Lavelle Crawford. I like Frank Caliendo. I like Impressionists as long as it's ridiculously funny. And it just... The little stupid things make me laugh. I'll admit this, just watching things on TV. Something that somebody thinks, you know, that's not funny. I think it's hilarious. It's the the yeah. stupidest thing in the world. If you can't laugh at something that stupid, it's like, man, what's wrong? Right. Yeah, I was getting into comedy, like, starting to follow a lot of comedians and stuff. And it's really interesting what some people find funny, what some people find offensive. And yeah, that's got to be one of, like, the, the biggest challenges to that line of work. You know, is like, where do you fit in? What's your niche? Like, are you trying to be the most offensive guy in the room? Because there's a market for that too, you know? But does anybody get rewarded for being too safe? You know, I, I don't know. It's really interesting gig. I can't imagine, I can't imagine doing it, but I love to watch. It's, it's one of like the coolest crafts I think there is. You know, my job is to make people laugh. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I also like Daniel Tosh, too. So that's also, if we're going to the scale of extremes. So yeah. not like I think, oh, Amy Schumer, she's saying, well, no, Daniel Tosh is absolutely funny. I think he's funny. And it's not gender related. There, there are some funny women out there. I just can't think of them off the top of my head. And that's not saying I don't know. They might have been a different style back then. You don't yeah. really see like the old straight man funny guy routine anymore like you had with some of those comedian pairings. And it's like, I wonder if it could still work in this age nowadays. Yeah, I actually think there is, I don't know, just for me, I think there's a wide range of, of things that would work now, like for comedy. I saw a couple years ago in Baltimore, I saw this guy who, uh, and I don't remember his name, forgive me, but he had this whole comedy act that was like, um, he had made like an animation of himself, like on the computer and, you know, it was projected behind him and he would like interact with his, his avatar basically and that was like part of the act and I was just like, 
this is really creative stuff. Like, you can really... I would have never thought this was funny, but here I am laughing my ass off, like, the way, like, his avatar's making fun of him and shit. Like, I don't know. I think there's a lot of room in, in comedy to do all kinds of stuff. Instead, you know? I think it's wide open now because I think people want to laugh. Anytime there's just times of distress and strife, people need a good laugh, you know? So I think the, the, the market is open for that. And I always try to go into a comedy thing with an open mind. I try to go open mind, try not to listen to anybody else saying they because it, it's subjective. Right. But if it starts off a little rough, it might take a while to get into, okay, this is legitimately funny. The awkward comedy sometimes doesn't work either. If you're just trying to play the whole awkward thing. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes you have people who are very funny, but maybe not stand up. Maybe not perfect stand-ups. Like, I think, I think Mike Epps is, like, probably one of the funniest people that ever lived. And, like, I like all his stupid movies and, like, all his characters and, like, movies that were never, ever going to see the screen and stuff like that. And, you know, I watch his stand-up and I'm like, uh, I don't really see it. But, like, just, just acting or... Even just like his Instagram, like he's fucking hilarious. You know what I mean? So stand-up is not everybody's lane. It's funny when you said Mike Epps. Now, I always think every time Dwight Smith Jr. plays for the Orioles and he does something big, I just think of that thing for All About the Benjamin. He's like, man, what about Dwight? He's like, Dwight around your lips. And I always think about that every time when I see Dwight Smith Jr. and he does something like, Dwight around your lips. And... I mean, you know, and like, you know, like something he just had with. Like, I mean, like, he's just naturally like that, you know? Yeah, and I think, man, he probably was a perfect fit to replace Chris Tucker in those Friday movies, but it's just something about that first Friday yeah. that the other two pale in comparison, and that's just me. And You know what, though? I don't think it was Chris Tucker. Like, I, I, you're right that they missed something, but I feel like it was almost missing, like, the, the plot or the writing or the story or something was... I don't really remember, it was like Pinky with a Cat Williams or something in the second one. Yeah, I, one. it's like, man, you can only have them and Debo around so many times. It just, you can only do so much before it becomes just, okay, do something different. No, I uh, did love, I think that was like Mike F's big break, right? It was like those movies. Yeah, I think so. It's, yeah, I think it was one of the biggest breaks. I don't think he really did much before that. But yeah, he, uh... I just watched this movie with, with him and uh, T.I. on Netflix called uh, The Trap. Like, you know, excessively stupid and not well made. But he was so funny. <laughs> he was playing T.I.'s older brother who had taken over the family uh, chicken business. And, you know, T.I.'s like the successful chef in New Orleans. And But, you know, Mike Epps has been never do well, older brother selling weed out of the, the chicken spot and like anyway so weed accidentally gets into the chicken and it suddenly becomes like the most popular chicken in Atlanta but right it's the dumbest thing you ever heard but man it's fucking hilarious he's so funny like, everything he says his body language and everything I'm just like guys like unnatural you know yeah, I, I don't understand it. Uh, you know, it. I, I agree. Some people are just funny in movies and they are on stage. And then the opposite. They're hilarious on stage, but you put them in a movie. Yeah. It's like they've taken every good thing out of them. Yeah. And yeah. 
Somebody who is really good and I don't think gets enough pun intended respect is Rodney Dangerfield. And I feel like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I just watching his stand-up, the hit-and-run jokes, it's like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And it's like... If it were a boxer, it's like a combination, and then he hits you that one big one, and then, uh-huh, wow. Yeah. And I always think about Back to School, and he talks about in the beginning, where he just he's doing a commercial for his uh, clothing thing. And he's like, are you a large man? Are you a husky man? When you go to the zoo, do elephants throw peanuts at you? And that is <laughs> the line. I would just watch Back to School just for those first couple of minutes. Just for that oh part. And it's like, wow. See, it's just something like that. It's like, boom. And I feel like, oh, there's a lot of good comedians now, especially I feel like you can never go wrong with comedians. Like Bobcat Goldweight is really funny, especially I feel like now he doesn't do the screaming stuff anymore. I feel like him doing a little more sedated stand-up. It is hilarious. Did you watch um, the Netflix special? It's called uh, Bumping Mics with uh, David Tell. And, um, jeez, oh, who's the other guy? Another guy who's like the same vintage as David Tell. Now I gotcha. I honestly have not watched a lot of uh, Netflix stuff. The last Netflix thing that I watched, aside from when my wife was finishing off episodes of Grace and Frankie, uh, we watched the Fire Festival one. Oh, that was really, that was really something. I watched that documentary too. I haven't seen yeah. the Hulu version yet, and I want to see I the, the Hulu one. I think that's more talking to people who were there uh, as right. opposed to the organizers and stuff like that. And I think that sounds like that is going to be a very interesting one. You get a little more personal touch and it's just like man what a rotten bastard he corrupted everybody that was around him and man that was such a story i really enjoyed that document the whole thing was like what the fuck you know and if you think that after 50 cent punked out job rule before that <laughs> that was the nail in the coffin to his reputation 50 cent lives for job rule getting punked. that is what makes his garden grow. He doesn't need coffee to wake up. He just needs Ja Rule to have a bad day. Yeah. And, like, no, that was crazy. You know, he's doing it again, though, right? Something he's doing. Enough. He's trying to... Yeah, I think he's writing a book about it. Gods of Fire. That's what it's called. Gods of Fire. Uh, man. Look, I've always been a Ja Rule hater because I can't stand his voice and all those stupid ballads he did in, like, 1999 or whatever. You know, ripping off DMX, basically. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that was a pretty good song. But then, like, and it still gets played, the, the duets with the girls. And, like, I'm sorry, I'm not listening to this, like, prepubescent, gravelly-voiced bastard sing this romantic song. Like, get out of here, Ja Rule. When that song comes on, the way you talk, the way you... I hate this <laughs> Oh, actually, that's the one I think he did with uh, Je- Jennifer Lopez. That was Jennifer Lopez, yeah. And then he did a few with Ashanti, I think. Ashanti, yeah. When that song comes on with Jennifer Lopez, I can't turn the radio fast enough. Everybody's got their songs, but that one is mine for sure. I can't do it with that one. Uh, yeah. But then to see him... Uh, and he kept saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, I wasn't really that involved with the Fire Festival. I was, uh, but, you know, I wasn't, like, involved with the planning. And then you see the Netflix movie, and, no, nah, you were there, dude. <laughs> like, you did all that stuff. That was wild. The people I felt the most bad for in the whole thing was all the people on that island 
Who did all that fucking work and didn't get paid. Yeah, that's the worst part. You're brought into this for no reason. The people who travel to go to the event, they say about uh, fools and money. We already know what happens there. We already know what happened. And you know what? If you're spending that much money to see Ja Rule in 2019, he deserves whatever you got coming. <laughs> that is so true. I mean, geez, there's probably plenty more people. I'd rather see DMX, even in his calamitous state that he is in, perform before I'd see Ja Rule. I would see a coked-up, manic DMX perform before the best Ja Rule can be, ever. Absolutely. Uh, you ever seen the Chris Rock movie Top 5? Yeah, yeah. Where DMX is in the jail singing Smile? Oh shit, yeah, that was amazing. I forgot about that part. Ben was the one who told me about that. So I'm like, oh my god, I watched it. And I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, that part was so fucking good, dude. Yeah, that movie was pretty good. Uh, It's like people who buy a uh, a ticket to go see Lauren Hill and, and expect her to be there on time or show up at all. Any of this. It's like, no, she has a track record of being on her own time. Okay, you better bring a book. You better bring a crossword puzzle, something, some, some knitting that you need to get done, something. It makes me think of the time I went to a Nats game where they're playing the Mariners or the White Sox. A guy is sitting there reading the newspaper, eating hummus in his chair during the baseball game. Wow, wow. <laughs> Very Washington. Yeah. Really something. Although I will say, I went to an Orioles game once. I think it was a Saturday game. Went by myself. This was, I want to say, like 2009, maybe 2010. And uh, it's like July or August. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know what? I got my book with me. I'm just going to read my book. Because this game sucks. <laughs> like, someone was like, oh, yeah, real fan you are. Reading your book at the Orioles game. I'm like, how many games have you been to this year? She's like, oh, this is my first one. I was like, I've been to like 15 fucking games and this team sucks, okay? I'm here, let me read this book. Like, what am I missing? What am I missing, gay? You know? So, yeah. But no, but hummus, I don't know, that adds something. The air of pretentiousness, that's all uh, it is. Yeah. I like hummus, but it's just, I don't know, something about it, yeah. Before we start winding this up, I did want to get your thoughts on this year's Orioles team. The rebuild is finally in effect now, and. This is probably going to be the first of a couple of bad seasons. There won't be a 1989 repeat here. But what are your thoughts on the rebuild and the whole process and then finally pulling the trigger and just blowing it all up? I have three thoughts. The first thought is I haven't watched a single game this year. Uh, not interested. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't need to see this team get blown out all the time. Second thought is I am really happy for Adam Jones and for Manny Machado getting to play somewhere else, you know, getting out. I'm like happy for it. Same way I was kind of with Marcakis, you know. I, I thought Marcakis left too soon. It wasn't his fault. But no, I, I, I want to see our stars get a chance to win, you know. That made me happy. And the third thing is, man, make Chris Davis a pitcher and that's it. Be done with it. I know he's swinging the bat now, but like when he was in that over 50,000 stretch, I was like, let's get him throwing the ball, man. Come on. He's a pretty good pitcher. Uh, we're paying him all this money. Fuck, man. You got to work for it. <laughs> um, no, but that's it. I'm not, I'm not especially optimistic about the Orioles. I never am. Um, I will check back in 
in a couple months, see how they're doing probably. I follow them, you know, most home runs given up, I think by far at this point ever, right? Um, you know, so will it, uh, will it yield some kind of benefit in the future? I don't know, I hope so. <laughs> That's all I've got. Yeah, I think that watching them so far, heading into May 2019, this team has more heart than they had last year. Plain and simple. These guys right. fight. They do fight. Times right. that they shouldn't come back, they do. After everybody phoned it in last year, which was a disgrace. Yeah. I have no problem. Hey, you know what? You're going to lose. The odds aren't. But sometimes the effort wasn't there. This year, okay. the guys are scrapping. They're playing. They may not have the best talent. Whether that may lead to a long-term Astros-style rebuild, who knows? There's all this talk that, hey, in a couple of years, this team might not even be in Baltimore, which would blow the death knell, especially the whole Masson fight and then the lease ends in two years, that 30-year lease that was extended initially, like in 88. Yeah. Who knows? I assume that they're going to get that all taken care of because that would be the worst thing, especially as we were talking about before the disgruntled Colts fans. Imagine the Orioles get good and they're not here anymore. I'd rather not. No, I didn't even realize that was a possibility, to be honest. Yeah, everybody was talking about this team. You know, first of all, there was talk that the Angelo Suns are just getting everything taken care of. They're setting on everything just in case to prepare this team to get sold. And then it seems like now they're in it for the long haul. That Masson deal is an issue with the Nats. But, I mean, that just could be a lot of uh, Dale Gribble-esque type of conspiracy theory thought. (laughs) And yes, the Rusty Shackleford, uh, you know, hiding yourself from the government thing. But maybe it's just a little paranoia coming in, especially people saw what happened 35 years ago, but it's not a stadium issue. It's not like they can't find local owners as long as they don't pull something stupid like the uh, Sonics did or like Howard Schultz did and sell to out of towners. Yeah. That could be the worst thing. I mean, if, if you're going to sell to somebody, sell to somebody who's in Washington, Northern Virginia. Guess what? They can't move a team to D.C. now. They're blocked. Yep, yep. The stadium is, and I know they don't own it, but that's what all these moves are about, usually. They involve the stadium. A stadium, someone building something. Uh, if they get some kind of lease, I mean, that's the thing. It's like the stadium is the most one of the most valuable parts of the team, honestly. It is the field that inspired all these other teams to build new stadiums and, and basically rip off Camden Yards like Cleveland did, you know? So if they were still playing Memorial Stadium and they were still dog shit and they had this ownership issue and they had, you know, TV deal issue, then yeah, I would be more worried about them and moving at that point. But because they do have... And, and the stadium is owned by the, the state, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, owned by the state. And they're basically they tenants. They're worshiping. I mean, the state will uh, eat crow on that deal if they have to to keep them there. You don't want to be the city that lost a football team and a baseball team over something stupid, especially the baseball team, you lose them over something stupid. It's something different if at the Angeles sell and the new ownership wants to move them anyway. That's something that's not on their hands. That would be some greedy owner, Yeah. you know, trying to pull basically a Jeffrey Loria and... And we always think about it. It could have been worse. The Orioles could have been won by Jeffrey Loria in that auction. He was the other bidder. Wow. Imagine what could have happened there. Miami Orioles. Or or they would have won a World Series, blew him up, won a World Series, blew him up, and... Yeah. 
I mean, or they would have maybe moved into Washington. That could have been right. the other thing. It's like, yeah. that was the whole fear with Edward Bennett Williams. It's like, okay, we got this Washington lawyer. He might move them to Washington. Right. But right. there's like this whole thing because he still combed the Redskins at the time with Jack Kent yeah. Cook. And I don't know if Jack Kent Cook was trying to force him out or what happened years down the road if the situation didn't happen and Dan Snyder comes around and went, oh, let's buy the Orioles. <laughs> the money would be spent, but ugh. Wow. Imagine if Dan Snyder was the Orioles owner. Like, we think it's bad now. It would be worse. Yeah, shilling money, getting money for every buck. Him only being fifty years old. Yeah, and like this will never change. This is never going to change. John, what are some ways as we wrap this up that people can contact you on social media? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, you can hit me up on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Andiamo. A N D I A M O E. Andiamo, like the Italian word for let's go, but uh, with an E on the end. Yeah, that'll work. That's all I'm giving you out there. <laughs> I do appreciate it, John. Thank you so much, and I look forward to doing this again. Hey, Earl, anytime. This is a great time, and uh, yeah, I'm going to see you at, at Cannon Yards one time this year. I know that at least, and, and hopefully uh, up in New York, too. Um, you guys come up for your Apollo, McDowell, City Field tour. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Howard. If you know anyone who might find this episode of interest, feel free to share this. Show notes and more information about our guests are available at thesportsrefuge.com backslash podcast. You can also listen to past episodes wherever podcasts are found. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.